Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to Forum Borealis with another episode in our series on the breakaway civilization and their classified space program. Friends, today we have a treat for you. One of the few remaining experts on the exotic military aviation technology will guide us through some of the basic irrefutable evidence for the fact that the U.S. war machine already have a space fleet and a so-called Star Wars program. While he provides verifiable case references, I will raise questions of their implications, and between us, we'll uncover and shed light on some of the most essential issues deriving from this incredible information. Our guest is, of course, the military aerospace historian Michael Schratt. He was born in Chicago in 1969, studied aerospace engineering at Parks College in East St. Louis, Illinois, is an aviation and aerospace professional who's worked as a solid works mechanical drafter, AutoCAD drafter and inventor drafter for various companies in Illinois, California and Arizona, like Armstrong Aerospace, and has also worked as a journalistic writer in the field, like at Open Minds magazine. Schratt has lectured all across America on the unique subject of mystery aircrafts and classified propulsion systems buried deep within the military-industrial complex. For instance, he was one of the main speakers at the Secret Space Program Conference at San Mateo in 2014 and at the world's largest air show, the Ushkush Air Venture Event in 2006-2007. He has been featured in several TV series and documentaries like The UFO Chronicles, America's Book of Secrets, Area 51, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Syrett, Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, UFO, The Greatest Story Ever Denied, uh, The UFO Files, and of course, at innumerable podcasts and radio shows like Coast to Coast, Fade to Black, and many others. Throughout his career, Michael Schratt has developed a number of contacts who have had first-hand experience dealing with classified black programs, including former USAF pilots, retired naval personnel, and aerospace engineers who have maintained a top-secret SI, also called Q-Magic, security clearance. As a classified Black Projects researcher specializing in the exposure of unacknowledged special access aerospace programs, he is rigorously devoted to exposing government fraud, waste and abuse, and spends much of his free time researching aerospace technical documents, conducting interviews and traveling to multiple university archives and libraries. In his capacity as a concerned citizen in civilian intelligence operations, he fights for our constitutional obligation to question authority 
and demand and accounting of unacknowledged special access programs that bypass media coverage, congressional oversight and public scrutiny. Michael, who's also a pilot, currently works as a SolidWorks draftsman and aerospace draftsman and researcher in San Jose, California. Today he joins the forum as yet another guest in this series to uncover yet further details on this incredible scandal that is the classified space program. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. And I appreciate having you on. The people who've uh, followed us for a while have heard me talk about my desire to get you on. Mm-hmm. And the reason, Michael, is it's pretty simple. We have had a series of, of interviews with different people in the field, like such as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that series, we've called it Timeline of a Breakaway Civilization, but it's, it's basically everything to do with the classified space program. It's history, it's players, you know, all sorts of aspects around there. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an expert in this field. I know enough to understand how important it is and that it needs a serious media attention. And you can't get away from your take on it if you want to have a complete series on this. Because your stuff, and I've been saying this on air in many different shows, mm-hmm. your stuff, Michael, is so tight. You're like at the, at the Secret Space Program Conference, your presentation there, it's like a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you had so much stuff you had to just cram it into a little piece of of sequence and it, it's so high quality material and it's so redempting for those of us who are sick and tired about everything being labeled alien right you know off you go with it into the mythical domain with it we know there is advanced technology on earth we know earthlings have yep, different sure. degrees of advanced technologies it would be a miracle if none of those ever were classified as ufos and that's why i want to have you on i want to contribute to people grounding themselves a little and and although it's more exciting to talk about grace and lizard people right <laughs> and all that stuff abductions you name it but we have to start at the uh, rational end where about what we know and what we know is much more than usually what people know and that's where you come in michael and so i'm so excited to have you on with your superior knowledge in the field so a very very warm welcome to you thank you very much i really appreciate it yeah so let's start with your background then a little uh, because i can't give that the Mm -hmm. probably the kudos it deserves let's take the ordinary route into this how on earth did you stumble into such a niche obscure field Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thanks for the comments. I really appreciate it. But, you know, I want to kind of state up front that this is a very unpopular facet of ufology. Very few people care about this level of technology. Um, It's not something that is put forth within the field because more people want to hear about little green men (laughs) abductions than they want to hear about historical military aircraft so you know it's a rather unpopular facet of ufology i just want to state that up front you know Mm. 
<clears throat> and, and by the way, that reflects in um, in the numbers and in also, I think, the price people pay for this. Because mm-hmm. if you do a straight psyop job, like I'd say Corey Good does, mm-hmm. then comes fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. If you do a hard uh, labor, traditional old school Let's say a freedman kind of job. You know, it's like any academic job, but at least you get it out there. But the stuff you're doing, there aren't many people in that field, is it? Uh, Back in 94, there were 12 people doing it. Now there's two. Jeez. So there's... There's very few people left, um, but you know, getting getting back to my background, yeah. I'm a private pilot. I'm an aviation historian. I've got about 500 hours total time within maybe four different aircraft. Um, I've been going to Oshkosh for 25 years, which is the largest, um, I guess, attended air show in the world because I used to live near Chicago. So that was kind of my background, and I always had an inquisitive mind wanted to find out where my tax dollars were disappearing and just started uh, really researching the classified aircraft within Lockheed, within McDonnell Douglas, within Northrop, within General Dynamics. And from there, it just took off by interviewing engineers and pilots who've worked on the programs. That's really how it started. Right. So you um, were like in the beginning, you were more of a fanboy, right? Um, I guess so. Yeah, sure. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a a, a fan of the SR-71? It's such an <laughs> inspiring aircraft. It's such an inspiring aircraft. And then when you talk to people who were friends with the Skunk Works engineers in Burbank who worked with Kelly Johnson and Ben Rich, for example, Jim Goodall, who's a good friend of mine, he was very good friends with Ben Rich. Ben Rich was the head of Skunk Works between 1975 and 1991. He died in 95, but prior to his death, uh, he got in one telephone call with Jim Goodall, and basically, Ben Rich told Jim Goodall over the phone, quote, we have things in the Nevada desert that are 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. If you've seen it on Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. That came directly from Ben Rich. Ben Rich also being the same chap, I think, who's rumored to have said after a lecture that we have the technology to take E.T. home. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. But he wasn't the chap who said that we have the technology to go to the moon and back again before lunch. Have you heard that? Mm, no, that was uh, allegedly a uh, a multi-star general at the Norton Air Force Base exhibit November 12, 1988. You see, people? <laughs> I only have to mention this thing and bam, there it comes with the facts. I love <laughs> it. This is going to be great. Though you do have a challenge. This is audio-based. And when we see your lectures with presentations and pictures, you know, it's so much easier to follow. So sure. we'll, ha- we'll have to try. But I think it's my job to make all your tight info, uh, should I say, uh, animated. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> ask the stupid questions that won't necessarily no problem. Mm-hmm. be answered I- immediately implied by, by your answer. So we'll, we'll try to make this radio friendly, but it is a very hard topic mm-hmm. to that's fine. Uh, be friendly on the air because it's so determined of visuals because most people won't yeah. know all these names and numbers that you spew out for the models and all this stuff. So, <laughs> But we will try. We'll try and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, already back then, you, there was indications. But when you were in this field, 
did you experience anything to start you questioning what's going on here? Mm, I just followed the aircraft. I followed the stealth fighter, the F-117, the B-2, started looking at the cost of the B-2, the fraud, waste, and abuse that went on in the program, $2.3 billion per aircraft. And, you know, I just wonder if they got $22.8 billion by 1988 when the rollout occurred at Air Force Plant 42 Palmdale, that was November 22nd, 1988, what did they do with that money? They only made one at that time. So what happened to the other $20 billion? Is there a possibility that some of that money got siphoned off to a side project? We can explore that as well. Yeah, we're going to. Uh, by, by the way, this was when, you said, back in the late 90s? This is n- November 22nd, 1988. So, so it was under Reagan, right? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, it was under Reagan. The, the program started under Carter, but the rollout was under Reagan. Right. And I always thought it was interesting because that's the same date that Kennedy got assassinated, November 22nd. So I wonder if there's any kind of tie in there. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Holland will probably call it a ritual uh, yeah. significance. Yeah, They right. tend to, to go for that. But if it was under Reagan, that's interesting because Reagan has an interesting quote in this, doesn't he? Well, yeah, he talks about uh, coming together, nations coming together to fight uh, outside threat. Yeah, yeah, no, I was more thinking of, yeah, that's a famous one, but I was more thinking of what he said once in his, no, it was in his memoirs. I think he said something, Ah, you know, could you tell us? Yeah, he talked about how we had the capability to put 300 people in orbit. So this, I think, 1986. Right. There's been some debate on what that means, but... uh, could be different uh, multiple ships together, could be one ship, don't know. But there's no question that if we take Ben Rich's comment at face value, then anything that you would see at your local air show is decades behind what we actually have. And isn't that, you know, if you're going to be scientific and realistic about this, has there ever been one single field where the military hasn't been decades uh, ahead of the ordinary world. I mean, anything from from meds to internet. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Right? So why would this particular area, which is probably the most important area in terms of so-called national security and and war and power on Earth, why would this be like, oh, no, no, we're totally straight with everything. (laughs) I mean, nobody believes it, even in the conventional Mm -hmm. military weapon arsenal. They are ahead. Yeah. And, and, and oh, it's yeah. not denied. <laughs> no, it's it's not denied. It, I think people know that uh, the military has things that are way beyond what we'd see. Even uh, Bill Scott, have to give credit to Bill Scott. He's been tracking this story almost his entire career at Aviation Week. He had 25 years at Aviation Week, and he's one of the original interceptors that got a lot of this started. So credit has to go to Bill Scott. But when I spoke to him a couple of years ago, he likened this to a 400-piece puzzle, but we only have 200 of the pieces. So he's been trying to fill in this tapestry for at least a quarter century now, and he's definitely got some of the puzzle. You know, we can certainly talk about his Black Star research, but one thing I try to kick this usually lectures off uh, doing this over the radio works as well. But uh, credit has to go to Mark McCandlish for coming Mm -hmm. up with this term, the three tiers of technology. So like tier one would be your common, ordinary garden variety aircraft, your F-15, your F-16, your F-14, something that you would see at an air show. 
tier two would be the black programs uh, that have been declassified into the into the white world. So that's the F-117, the B-2, Boeing, Phantom Works, Bird of Prey. And the tier three programs are the classified, unacknowledged special access programs that have no congressional oversight. This is your Belgium Triangle, your Hudson Valley Boomerang, your TR-3B. So those are the three tiers of technology. Okay, that's interesting. Um of course, I have a question, and, and I may take it now. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I want to talk a little about the money before I go back to the T1 to T2, T3 thing. Uh, sure. You mentioned uh, already back in the day, in the 80s, uh, there were millions. Uh, you were following waste, and <laughs> man, that's easy <laughs> in Pentagon. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not just uh, now. I mean, they've always had billions and billions pumped their right. way and unaccounted for god knows when, uh, how far back this goes but we know uh, Catherine Fitz you probably obviously know about her research mm-hmm. right and I think she's counting do you remember from when she's counting with the latest number she's talking about 50 trillion or 60 trillion now that's the absolute latest mm, yeah they always talk about how uh, <clears throat> it was stated 2.3 trillion on uh, September 10th, 2001, and then a day later, 9/11 happened. This is Donald Rumsfeld, so that was the trigger point. I think some estimates are could be up to 50 trillion at this point. Yeah, I, do. I had her on. I think she started before. I think she started uh, around the um, housing uh, mm-hmm. bubble thing. When was that? Yeah, that was after 9/11. 2000, 2008. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, she probably starts around 2001 then. And what do you think? I mean, normal people like myself, we have no clue what 50 trillion means is. You know, it's just a a very exotic number. Uh, We do know what a thousand dollar is. Sure. (laughs) And ten thousand dollar. But how would you say... Uh, I mean, the statement that uh, Reagan made, how much money would have to be out there in circulation for them to get that many people up at that point. Okay. Well, we can start with the Detroit Free Press, February 8th, 1987. The headline is Secret Ledger Hides Military Projects. Pentagon Black Budget Has Tripled Under Reagan. And in this article, they give a chart, and they basically say that the Air Force budget for fiscal year 1988 is $51.1 billion, of which... 19.1 billion was classified programs for fiscal year 1988 so that's a good starting point mm. absolutely and 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 that's a lot of money back then yeah uh, i oh, don't absolutely. think i mean now money is much more just numbers in a computer than it was back then they hadn't yep. completely detached it from actual values being produced in society so the inflation wasn't uh, that's when it started i mean in the 80s for real mm-hmm. so that means that any money back then were worth more than today sure but so we have this t1 t2 t3 and as i understand it t1 is the uh, advanced exoteric if you like uh, research technology t2 is what eventually becomes white like mm. or well if, if we want to continue down the road here you know yep. just following up on the budget it, it definitely was the beginning of the Reagan administration right around 81 time frame where all these black programs really started getting funding. And how do we know that? Because June 8th, 1981, Newsweek, Reagan's defense 
buildup, uh, this is the Rosetta Stone for black programs. Mm -hmm. It was the beginning of this Reagan buildup, and even Aviation Week Space Technology, they even chimed in on this. Uh, this is December 24th, 1990. Quote, eight years of, of the Reagan administration in Washington were very good to the black world. So even they yeah. admit that it was the Reagan administration that stemmed and brought forth all these programs. And to give a little context, uh, back then it was before the Soviet fall, obviously, and mm -hmm. those who had taken office with Reagan, there was a... Should say uh, like a um, peace deal or what you call it, uh, a compromise within the Republican Party. So you you got those people who hoped for uh, libertarianism and, and freedom, like Ron Paul people and stuff. They were mm -hmm. kind of behind Reagan and also Ross Perot people and stuff like that. But on the other hand, you had uh, usual uh, suspects like Bush and CIA and the military right. industrial complex. And they were really calling the shots because they got into essential positions. In his government, they made him be the actor in chief, you know, the, the, um, what you say, you know, in front of ships, uh, like a figurehead, is that what you call it? Figurehead, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say Reagan was more of that. And then the chaps who probably were behind uh, JFK assassination were in full charge. And right. none more symbolic for that, I'd say, than Bush Sr. And, so they could cause havoc with the American state, especially the deep state. Yeah. And uh, but but you have these three uh, definitions that McAndlish is talking about: T1, T2, T3, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and yeah. so T3 would that be equivalent to what Catherine Fitz calls? Because she talks about you know first you have the white economy, right? Then you have the black part of the white economy. Mm -hmm. It's still a part of the white economy. It is like the black. Uh, budget maybe that's the word for it right. and then you have real black money who never touches base with white who like say drug uh, whitewashing stuff like that so, so would you say that the T3 is basically financed by money who never is a part of the white economy it's, it's definitely a mix of the T2 and T3 programs because they were once black programs that have gone white since now. And then the T3 would definitely be within the jurisdiction that Catherine talks about. So mm -hmm. it would be a mix of both T2 and T3. And the way that you can track these programs is every January – Congress submits a budget. This is for the Air Force, the Marines, the Navy, the Army, and you can actually get a copy of this. It's called RDT&E Programs R1. stands for Research Development Test and Evaluation Programs R1. And you can walk right into the Library of Congress and request this, and they will give this to you. Jeez. And within this report, it's a boring 25-page report, you can start tracking what these code names are, for instance, senior year, forest green, these are all different classified programs. So what you do is you take the total amount, you subtract the knowns, and what you're left is with the black budget. That's how you track the programs. Wow. And and um, anyone can request this? Don't you have to yep, be a journalist can, or something? No, nope, you can walk right into the Library of Congress and tell them that you want a copy of the RDT&E programs R1 for the Air Force for, say, 1997. And they'll give it to you. 
and they'll give it to you. And you can go down the uh, program element numbers and you can track the code names and you can track how much was spent, but not on the black programs because they don't tell you. But for instance, here's a couple more code names. Uh, Rosetta, Housekeeping, Redbird, Rainbow, Snowbird. And the way these code names work is the smaller the code name, the more classified the project. So if you have senior year and you have something called Oxcart or you have something called uh, Rosetta. So Rosetta would be more classified than senior year because it's a smaller code name. Right, right. Uh, I, I say they're not very creative about the, these code names. They reek <laughs> of uh, suspicion. <laughs> Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of them are, are tied to the space somehow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can uh, determine pretty ground-based. Uh, it's not a big leap then to see that we know there is secret research, obviously, in um, advanced technology, especially to do with aviation. We know they have the funds and the means to do it. Yeah. Uh, like I said, fits uh, latest number, and that's after she got ordinary university people on board to investigate this because now it's going mainstream so 50 trillion uh, yeah back to that number how would you i mean what can they get for 50 trillion is that enough to to really let's say finance let's say do you think they could have like a hundred anti-gravity to use that unpopular term uh, spacecrafts out there based upon that number um, well, they could do it for a lot less than that, but since the military-industrial complex feels entitled to charge the taxpayer three times more or up to ten times more than something really costs, the numbers have just gone off the charts. Um, and that's the problem, is they feel entitled to charge more. Now, we need to talk about who the offenders are. Yeah. We need to talk about which ones we're discussing here. Lockheed Martin, for sure. General Dynamics, Boeing, Rockwell, McDonnell Douglas, Northrop. Of course, you know, McDonnell Douglas is now Boeing. But generally during the Reagan administration, these are the companies that we're talking about. And they. What about Raytheon? Raytheon is involved as well, for sure, for sure. No doubt about it. But let me give you an example here about fraud, waste, and abuse. There is a publication... It's called The Pentagonist, and the subtitle is An Insider's View of Waste Mismanagement and Fraud in Defense Spending. It's by A. Ernest Fitzgerald. And in this book, he discusses something called a F-16 pulley puller. It's a small block that's about two inches long. It's about one inch wide and about mm, a little less than a quarter inch thick, and it has three tapped holes in it. How much would you guess American taxpayers were charged for this tiny little block in your estimation? Oh, uh, I guess double of what it costs. Well, in 1983, taxpayers spent $13,717 for this tiny little block, and there could have been thousands of these made. Hmm. Later on, the the General Accounting Office did an audit of these blocks, and it turned out none of them worked. They had to reject them all. So we blew all that money. <laughs> blew all that money. So, so that part of you, because you know, there's two uh, poles when it comes to regarding the deep state. On the one hand, you have the people who say, "Oh, they're so incompetent. They don't know what they're doing, and they're wasting a lot of money." And uh, you know, you can find evidence for that. But then 
then on the other hand, you have those who know there's such geniuses and anything <laughs> they do, you know, we can. But I, I think it's a combination, actually, of both. It is. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. No, no doubt about it. Let me give you a couple other examples here. This is from the Washington Post, August 17th, 2007. Defense contractor was paid $1 million to ship two washers. Right. So something that you could go down to Ace Hardware and and spend 39 cents for, taxpayers spent a million dollars to ship two of these 39 cent washers. That's just one example. That's just one example, and 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 we don't yep. and we if you look at the Iraq War, uh, the one under Dubia, mm-hmm. then uh, this is systemized. This this that may have been exceptions only for the black stuff back then becomes mainstream. It was so bad that they shipped cash loads of money over. Oh yeah. And and gold. And nobody can account for it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's a ploy to get rich in the process. So they're not just limiting themselves to getting exotic toys that makes them gods compared to us. Now they also want to become the new oligarchs. And that's what I asked Richard Dolan about. Because in my view, you know, you have the people who actually flies these things and, and... I guess a lot of the budget also goes to security, of course. Uh, that's probably mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as the science. But all in all, you have those people who are hands-on, day-to-day, interacting with this stuff. Then you have the people who are the usually regarded as the culprits, namely the owners, the oligarchs, those who own all these companies. And uh, Because this is both private and uh, we also see this stuff in public, like in NASA and in CIA and in Pentagon. Yeah. But uh-huh. it's the same kind of people at the end of the line behind both uh, the public or state uh, or federal um, outlets and the private uh, multinational corporations. But my, my question is, and I'd like your take on this, mm-hmm. who do you think are really calling the shots? Is it the owners or are they oblivious to how far? Because I'm I, I they may have micromanaging detailed insight into because if I'm like very high up in a in the deep state and I run like a UFO project or something mm-hmm. I can kind of hijack this thing and I can kind of make you know skim it to me and my fellows uh, advantage all the time we know that CIA is now into banking and we know that's control everywhere they have everyone they can spy on everyone yeah. let alone the president so who do you think are the real, and granted this is speculation, but you are qualified to speculate about this. So, so who do you think are the real perps here? Well, in many cases, when you have a black program that's proprietary to the contractor, like the Boeing Phantom Works Bird of Prey, it's the contractor that's driving the program. So this is something that is exempt from FOIA requests. You can't get anything else on uh, Boeing Phantom Works Bird of Prey. This was declassified October 2002 during the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And so that one is off limits to the public. Um, so it's number one, it's definitely that the contractors definitely are involved. But then the three people that I feel are at the top, number one, Dick Cheney, number two, Bill Perry, number three, George Bush W. Sr. So Herbert Walker Sr. So uh, these three people are definitely involved. Now, the reason why... Who was the second one again? uh, Bill Perry, former Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry. 
Mm. He's the one who wrote the checks for Ben Rich at the Pentagon. Right. So he he would have a need to know because he's the one who wrote the checks at, for the Skunk Works to uh, develop the stealth technology. So these three people are – Yeah, the, but I'm pretty sure Bush Sr. today is Bush exempt. Senior. Yeah, but I, I don't think he's running anything today. He's too yeah, demand. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Back back at the time, though, he, yeah, he sure. was certainly involved. No sure. Oh, yeah, he was one of the top players. But what are we, do you think Dick Cheney may have taken over his um, position? Cheney's involved. There's there's no doubt about it. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Now, when, he, when you get back to Perry, he didn't have a direct connection to the development of stealth, but he's just the one who cut the checks. So he's still involved, though. He's still involved. Yeah. So uh, people that are in charge now... I would just have to default back to the contractors, the Skunk Works engineers, the people who worked with Kelly, the people who worked with Ben Rich. Those people would know. But the only problem is those original Skunk Works engineers are almost all completely gone. There's about right. a half dozen of them left now, and they're just all gone. Yeah, did you see the interview that um, David Serida did with mm, yeah. one of these – Lockheed Martin people who talked about yes aliens. Who was that he he talked with? I forgot his name. I don't know. Yeah, but he was one of the engineers, uh, old one. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty disappointed about. Mm-hmm. You know, he he could probably bring along better evidence. But then again, if he had done that, he wouldn't be sitting there laughing, and you know, he would be in the deep shit. I think. So that I, I think that quote unquote disclosure was more or less within what they can tolerate. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt that there are many programs that Skunk Works worked on during the Reagan administration that have never seen the light of day. Right. There's something called Excalibur out there. Uh, there's there's allegedly another version of the F-117 that's never been talked about called the Flying Artichoke. Two of these were seen. I've got reports of two very interesting flying wing type craft that departed Cannon Air Force Base 1986. So there's still a lot of birds out there. Right, right. Uh, there's a lot to, to get to, and um, yeah, I'm taking notes here too. But um, let's uh, still uh, dwell a little more on, on this uh, bigger picture bef- before more details. Like yeah, that's fine. Uh, Bush Sr., Bill Perry, and Dick Cheney are all rather public figures. And uh, right. I, I, I doubt, I'm pretty sure there has to be people who are not that public involved too. Right. Uh, maybe more of those than those we do know about. And then there's the question, okay, so if it all goes back to the contractors, that means private um, businesses, that means multinational corporations. But the question is, those who own these corporations, are they the really the beneficiaries of all this or could it be hijacked by middle management, if you see what I mean, because they really have the power to send info further up, right? And those at the top, they only want specific stuff. For example, they want to fulfill the mission or the contract of whatever's going down, and they want the profits. But (laughs) the chaps who actually run around in these spacecrafts, and we have, you know, and we can get to that now, Gary McKinnon, you know, he hacked, as we all know. And found out they actually have a space fleet by now or by then. <laughs> but it's still decades after Reagan, so they would have time to build up such a space fleet. 
And that means there's actually officers, there are a lot of people involved in a very deep. And, and then there's also the question, oh, how can they keep all this secret? You want to touch upon some of this? Hmm. Good, good questions. Good questions. Um, when you're talking about something that large, something that Gary McKinnon had talked about, we're, we're definitely at a level three at that point. Um, certainly, none of the members of the House and Armed Services Committee would have a need to know. It's way beyond them. Yeah. Um, they're trying to track down GAO reports. Um, they're trying to track down these budgetary funding for these programs. Very few of those members are clued in on unacknowledged special access programs. Very, very few. Although Harry Reid was clued in to the fact mm-hmm. that there is a secret space program, although what they sold him was peanuts mm-hmm. compared to the real Yeah, because some of these things go way beyond what the members of Congress are, are talking about. Yeah. We can talk about just what's going on. Don't want to get too far off subject here, but <clears throat> something needs to be talked about on the F-22. Um, looks like we may have lost some at Tyndale Air Force Base recently with that hurricane. But for the F-22, it's $412 million per aircraft. $412 million per aircraft. That's just an unbelievable amount of money mm-hmm. getting poured into that. And then the F-35 is not too far from that. And we're at a point now where the fixes on the F-35 are more profitable for Lockheed Martin than the aircraft itself. And in fact, this program is so costly that they have a name for it. It's called the plane that broke the Pentagon's back. <laughs> that's that's what we've got here. You know, uh, right. according to 60, 60 Minutes, the F-35 is eight years behind schedule, $163 billion over budget. So could the F-35 be a red herring for mm-hmm. another program that's deeper black? So they piggyback it on, on, on uh, yeah. white programs. Mm. That's right. That's mm. right. Mm-hmm. Yep, you got it. Well, it's either that or they want to fill their coffers. But at this point, they have so much money that they don't need. I mean, they can get anything they want. So it's probably more to do with financing something specific. Yeah, um, you just you can't spend that kind of money. You no. just can't be a hundred billion dollars over. But you, it's just not even possible. <laughs> you know, yeah. something else going on here, and there's no telling what could be funded under those programs. Going back to the B-2, uh, the B-2 is child's play uh, when you compare it to the F-35. The amount of money that's spent on the F-35 is multiple times what we blew on the B-2. Uh, that was just $2.3 billion per plane. When you're at the F-35 level, we're on a whole different set of rules here, set of capabilities. But what I try to track is since there were 132 B-2s originally planned and only 21 were built, and then we have the Hudson Valley boomerang sightings that are between 82 and 89, could some of that money for the B-2 procurement program been filtered or siphoned off to something that was partially responsible for the Hudson Valley sightings? That's something that uh, should be looked at as well. Could you, could you fill us in on those sightings? Sure. 
So between 82 and 89, we're talking about 25,000 eyewitnesses reported a gigantic boomerang chevron-shaped craft that had multicolored flashing lights. It had tubes, pipes, and cylinders. It had panels on the bottom that were transparent where people who were below the craft looked up and could see the cross-beam and girder construction like a truss bridge. Uh, and this it happened for almost a 10-year time period. Thousands of eyewitnesses saw this thing. It was seen heading northbound to Yorktown Heights on the Taconic State Parkway, hovering over the freeway. Thousands of people pulled off to the side of the road, got out of their cars, and were awestruck to see this massive boomerang making these flat 180-degree turns like on a turntable directly over the cars below and shining spotlights down on the people below. This happened multiple times during the 1980s. Wow. In your present, one of your presentations, I think it may have been on the Secret Space Program conference, you put out a lot of observations from known military bases, and you time them, and you analyze them, and you just end up giving like their actual flight schedules for their UFOs. <laughs> it's so yeah. it's so amazing. Could you try to to make a radio friendly version of that here? Sure. Although you can't show us visuals. No, no problem, no problem. Mm. So you know the the the, the sixty four million dollar question here is which ones are ours and which ones are theirs. Excellent. So is it live or is it Memorex, and how do you tell the difference? That's what I've been really focusing on. Mm. And one way is to track the times, the dates, the locations, but then listen to the eyewitness testimony as well. So, for instance, on March 23rd, 1983, Reagan gave his address to the nation pitching the SDI or Star Wars program. So that was March 23rd, 1983. No less than 24 hours later... There was a massive sighting of a gigantic boomerang-shaped craft over the Taconic State Parkway. Now, this was on a Thursday night, and so many of these sightings happened on a Thursday night. So why Thursday? The Thursday filters over to the 1997 Phoenix Lights incident as well, March 13, 1997. Yeah. It also filters over to the early to mid-1990s, uh, quote-unquote, Aurora sightings and airquakes that were uh, felt over the whole valley area during the early to mid-1990s. These were on a Thursday as well. So we keep seeing this motif again, Thursday, Thursday. Why Thursday? It's because, as it was explained to me, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are pre-flight. Thursday's the test flight, Friday's the debrief, Saturday, Sunday, there's no one there. And you can see this over and over and over again, these Thursday nights. So when you hear about a, a classified sighting of something happening on a Thursday, there's a very good likelihood that it's one of ours. Wow. So so by the same token then, if you see something weird in the weekend, mm -hmm. that's when the bureaucracy is resting. <laughs> They're actually following the... We have the same here. We work Monday to Friday and Saturday, Sunday. We, we're right. free, especially if you work for the state. <laughs> and they, they're and keeping that in the black. Yep. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is these guys are good. You know, we're talking about the CIA, the NSA, yeah. the NRO, and the programs that are procured under the NRO 
and under the CIA, their mandate is to lie, deny, and deceive. So if there's a test flight of something on a Thursday night, the very next day, the supermarket tabloids will have a headline, Alien Craft Seen by Multiple Eyewitnesses yeah. with Abduction and Baby uh, you know, experiments done. They will put that in the tabloids the next day to discredit the actual sighting. So what they're doing is they're using the quote-unquote extraterrestrial phenomenon as a cover to hide their own deep black programs. Exactly. And uh, let's let's give some kudos to Joseph Farrell. You're aware of his book, Roswell and the Reich, right? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm very good friends with Joseph, yes. Yeah. And one of the very interesting takeaways from that book is that I think he's on to a strategy they're using. I call it the false dichotomy. <laughs> now, imagine that if, uh, let's say, there is a secret space program and you have all these discrepancies around the moon. You know, you, the moon hoaxers, the people who believe right. we never went there. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you can have a good case for that scenario if you don't have all the uh, facts. So you get a dichotomy uh, of people who think we never went to the moon. <laughs> and then those who think that, obviously the skeptics who think everything w- was going as following. But then you can fill those, if people get critical, you can, you know, derail that way that we never went to the moon hoax. And then the truth is lost in between. Uh, like if the truth is that we did have a fake program that doesn't hold up to scrutiny and falls apart when that analysis starts, and then the real the real space program. So that's a way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in, in Joseph's book, it, it was pitched uh, differently that it was, okay, what if two years after the war, we have some exotic technology that the quote unquote enemy is controlling on, on very human hands, but still a huge military scandal when uh, we've already celebrated the end of the war and mm-hmm. the public attention is hijacked over to Soviets and then bam this thing happens they're not able to protect us obviously and we also know that by then that time the whole American system was flooded with Nazis the good Nazis you know the Nazis who were supposed to be useful and helpful for us so it's a dream scenario for them on the one hand to have swamp gas and weather balloons derail the skeptics then we have the deep end. Yeah, it's little green man. So derail that kind of people, you know, all those who, who wouldn't believe the official narrative. And then in between, you have a little more mundane, yet not, not less explosive than aliens, namely a human elite playing around with sure, these toys. Sure. That's, that's the dichotomy that he outlines for that specific case, but it seems to fit a pattern that they always use. For example, I tend to say ancient aliens, although there may be such a thing, is a perfect, wonderful distraction from an antediluvian human civilization. Huh. And we see the same going on in the traditional UFO field. If there are advanced spacecraft origined on Earth, which it obviously is, it's being drowned in the noise of the alien thing. And that's where your research is so impeccable, Michael, because... I always tell this also to the pro-aliens, you know, the old school people, that they admit, they're talking about back 
genetic um, engineering. They are big proponents for that. Still, never ever is any of the stuff flying out there human. It's always aliens. Even when <laughs> in their own paradigm, you have to account for some human stuff. You know what I mean? That annoys me a lot. Well, I think the important thing to do is to track the money, and I'll give you an example here. This is newspaper heading Amarillo Daily News, November 26, 1955, and here they say aircraft industry firms now participating or actively interested in gravity include the Glenn L. Martin Company of Baltimore, Convair of San Diego, Bell Aircraft of Buffalo, New York, Sikorsky Division of United Aircraft, Lear Incorporated of Santa Monica, Clark Electronics of Palm Springs, and Spirit gyroscope of Great Neck, Long Island. So here in this article, they're talking about aerospace companies, defense industry, insiders working on ways to crack the gravity barrier as early as the mid-1950s. Wow. So they had already made this breakthrough at that time. So when we hear about these craft making these 90-degree right angle turns and coming backwards, uh, making these 10,000-mile-an-hour turns – They've already done it. They've made the breakthrough. The, this was done in the mid-1950s. So it's no wonder that we see these things. It's it's a done deal. In the 50s, imagine how far they are today if they were playing yep. around with it then. I mean, uh, right. 10 years in, in, in that industry is like a decade in, in the world. Oh, yeah. world. So oh, yeah. so they may, oh, Jesus, they may be a breakaway civilization, just like Dolan is, is portraying it. But <laughs> if, if something crashed in the 40s, we know several famous crashes around, I think, 46 already, 47, 48. If that was used as to help them facilitate it, by 55, they would have something that wouldn't be that hard for them to get. Absolutely. Although maybe, probably not a fleet in 55, but at least some, what do you think, some, some uh, what you call it, original models, draft models? Uh that's where the story runs off the rails because it's very difficult to prove the crash retrievals. Mm. Uh, it's very hard to pin that down, although I can't discredit all of them. Uh, Leonard Stringfield's cases have about 120 separate cases within the files at the MUFON headquarters. You would think some of those cases were true, although it's very hard to prove it. You would think some of them have some validity to them. Yeah, and if it was our technology, you would expect some crashes in the beginning. Right, you certainly wouldn't expect someone who managed to get from Alpha Centauri and over here to crash as soon as they came into our right. <laughs> range, you know? Yep. So it is a good, I mean, the whole alien thing may be a meme, maybe a disinfo to begin with. Mm-hmm. I tend to think there may be human beings floating around, although not necessarily originated at Earth or, or maybe originated but a very long time ago. I, I, I'm, I'm more positive to that scenario. That's just my two cents. I'm not saying sure. it's a higher validity of truth than any other hypothesis. But from, from my paradigm, from everything I've analyzed, etc., it takes me a lot more to buy into that. Because, again, if you look at the classical alien scenario, Mm-hmm. These creatures are always, okay, so they looked out in, in smarts and technology, but damn, they really were uh, unfortunate in the looks department. Yeah, they true. all look like each other. Yeah. <laughs> There's no difference. They all look like some mm-hmm. creatures on earth, like an insect creature or a reptile creature or, you know, 
so there's no individual difference between them as it is between us human beings. We can look, you know, we can almost look mm-hmm. like a different species within the same. So, so we have individuality, but they don't, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just too close to myth. And also very often when you have this exotic alien thing, different creatures, it's so often connected to paranormal stuff, psychic stuff. In my view, it tends to be more connected to psyops and Mm -hmm. that kind of exotic research, spiritual, metaphysical stuff. Whereas when we go down to Earth and we look at, like, let's say this, you mentioned um, Phoenix Lights. That's a very famous triangle craft, one of the big one, right? right? Is there any data to support my bias, which goes like this? If it's a triangle, it's more likely human technology. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you 100. percent And not only that, it was a Thursday night, oh. and a lot of the eyewitness, a lot of the eyewitnesses stated that thing was transparent. You could see through it, and that may be indicative of an airborne holographic image projection technology. Ah, because they have, in the invisibility department, people think that's far out. No, you can make a case for it scientifically. We know everything about light and, you know, light can either, photons can either be absorbed partly or fully, or they can penetrate or they can reflect. So it's not very hard. And and then I know they had these devices for the soldiers, uh, these vests that were (laughs) make them invisible, quote unquote, so they would... uh, tune in blend in with the surroundings do you know about that technology oh sure sure talking about electrochromic panels and getting back to this 2025 report uh, i'm not going to read all of the different uh, subcategories but i want to highlight yeah. one here this is five decimal six airborne holographic projector again reference for this is air force 2025 report here's what they say brief description The holographic projector displays a three-dimensional visual image in a desired location removed from the display generator. The projector can be used for psychological operations and strategic perception management. It is also useful for optical deception and cloaking, providing a momentary distraction when engaging an unsophisticated adversary. So, according to this report, they've got the technology to produce an image of an aircraft in flight that originates from another platform and they can project it over a battlefield, they can project it over mountains flying over the Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport and it would be used to engage an unsophisticated quote-unquote adversary. So is that us? Is that that what they're talking about? Mm. They already had the technology according to the 2025 report. Yeah, but if they have stuff to get to other stars, they may encounter more primitive life. And mm-hmm. for sure, they can present themselves as gods there with this technology. Sure. Oh, yeah. God knows. You know, all the violations of human rights, animal rights, whatever, or, or, all the demonic stuff they're actually doing on Earth, imagine how they would treat. Yeah. You know, it, it goes to movies like Avatar and stuff like that. Yeah. I for sure wouldn't want to be a civilization encountering ours <laughs> out there. You'd be toast. You, 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 they make Columbus look like a regular humanitarian. <laughs> Okay, so they have technology to actually cloak and make invisible, but you're going, in this case, you're going more with the hologram thing. 
It's it's it could be a projected image. This is mm. this is what multiple eyewitnesses stated that this thing was shimmering. It was transparent. You could see through it. It was fifteen hundred feet across. That's consistent with a a projected image. You could have it yeah. ten miles across. In that, there's no telling how long they could why they could make this thing. So that's where I'm heading for for this research. And this is definitely within the level of technology that Ben Rich talked about prior to his. Uh, death in 95. That tells me that uh, there's two potential intentions with that Phoenix sighting thing. Either it's a decoy to cover up something else they were doing that day Mm -hmm. that they didn't want reports of or or want people to see, which is more tangible, which is actual aircrafts. Or it was just a psyop, uh, an experiment with a new technology that they are playing around with. You know, they need data for how that would turn. Because a very weird thing with the Phoenix lights is that it was such a mass sighting that even officials had to come clean about it. Right. But the interesting thing is, despite it being so tight, so many people seeing it, they try to get away with the usual smirking and dismissing and ridiculing, which isn't a genuine reaction from officials if they actually, if they aren't clued in or told. If this isn't a, an operation, why would all these officials who themselves had seen it go straight to the ridiculous uh, <laughs> category? You know what I mean? Well, as far as when you're talking about different sightings and everything, I think we should highlight some of the military witnesses that have seen these craft as well, because those represent some of our most credible witnesses. For instance, astronaut Gordon Cooper, in his book, Leap of Faith, subtitle, An Astronaut's Journey into the Unknown, he specifically talks about two UFO encounters that he's had which we've we've got to take him at face value since he's one of our original Mercury astronauts. Mm. Uh, it describes his 1951 West Germany encounter where he and his wingmen were flying an F-86 and squadrons of these flying saucers would fly over the Air Force Base. And after a couple of these incidents, he said, let's go try to intercept these. So they both, you know, basically piled under their F-86s, went up into the almost vertical 60-degree angle of attack, and were trying to intercept these craft. These things are way too high and way too fast for his wingman and himself to intercept. So that's one. And then the other is... Hang on, hang on. Could he just take that decision of following them without clearing it with Central Command? I'm sure it was clear because this happened multiple times. He said that this happened multiple times Mm. over the Air Force Base, and they they had enough of it. So they they wanted to go chase after these things. Mm. And it outpaced the F-86 easily. And when was this? This was 1951 West Germany. Oh, that early. Yeah, 51. Right. 51. Right. 51. Now, years later in 57, when Gordon Cooper was at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, this is May 3rd, 1957. This is that famous Edwards Air Force Base encounter where he was in charge of installing precision landing camera instrumentation. Hmm. at Edwards Air Force Base. Now, Gordon Cooper was not present when this took place. He was inside the base at the time, so he didn't see this. But at least two cameramen, they got this all on film, where this 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft hovers over the dry lake bed, extends out the uh, pogo leg 
con, uh, configuration, lands on the dry lake bed, sits there for one minute, pops back up, retracts the legs, and then takes off at a high rate of speed. This is all caught on film. And then as the story goes, there was an Air Force courier that had a uh, – kind of like a wrist chain that was attached to a briefcase and it was sent back to Andrews Air Force Base. That film has never been seen. So there's got to be a whole warehouse full of these films that have never been seen before. Right. Yeah, if they, if they preserve it, we know that NASA has yeah. been destroying sure. lots of evidence because they're afraid of this old technology evidence because the new technology, there's no telling what's real and not. <laughs> but the old technology is not digitalized, so it's much easier to prove stuff if you have your hands on that kind of technology, which explains why NASA would destroy so much. <laughs> But, um, okay, so so we have uh, indications that something was going on very early on, and very right. early on they blamed aliens. Now, do you really think they would blame aliens if there was such a thing as an intelligent creature out there irresponsible for these phenomenons? Mm, the CIA will blame any anyone that they feel is important enough to cover their own program. So I don't I don't feel any problem stating that at all. They they'll blame anyone and anything to cover their own bribe. They've done it before. So even even if there was aliens, they would do it. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, give you another quick case here. Uh, the USS FDR. This is a famous case. November 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. They were on an exercise where at least 25 naval uh, officers, sailors, saw this 100-foot-long cigar-shaped craft hover over the flight deck of the aircraft carrier, the FDR. This is back in 1958. And they could feel the heat coming down off this thing on their faces. And we've got the original testimony and sketches from uh, Mr. Grzynski, who was there and saw this. And they said that this cigar-shaped craft had these porthole windows with these beings looking back at them at the flight deck. And one of them was actually waving back to the guys standing on the flight deck, pointing up at this craft. This thing turned an orange color and departed at a high rate of speed. So here's another. We've got multiple eyewitnesses. Credible naval officers saw this thing. We, we can't just throw it out. Mm-hmm. So there are some of these good cases. Yeah, and the earlier these cases are recorded, the less of a chance they're belonging to us, you know, or at least um, us as in current, or or at that time current um, uh, deep state. But this is interesting. We have triangles, very famously has eventually become a UFO archetype. We have cigars, they become an archetype very early on. And we have, of course, the flying saucer. Uh, Are there any other, uh, should I just say, well-known shapes that are connected to to such sightings i think you hit the major ones but getting back to the triangles uh my assessment regarding triangles um we have to talk about the belgium triangle case this is november 1989 march 1990 where we had at least five thousand hang on the phoenix lights when was that those this is march 13th 1997 
97. So this is about 10 years before, eight years before. This is, yeah, this is way before, way before that time. Okay. But what's interesting is now on the Hudson Valley boomerang, 82 to 89, the eyewitnesses said that they saw tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of the craft. Now we fast forward to 1990. You've got multiple eyewitnesses saying that they saw this gigantic triangular shaped craft that hovered over, over uh, the towns, the fields, the rural areas. And it was about the size of a football field. It also had tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of that craft as well. And then on January 5th, 2000, we've got uh, triangular-shaped UFOs and something that looks like a single-story wrench with a penthouse on top that has <laughs> Lego bricks on the bottom of it. Jeez. And I've got like 12 different cases of these tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of these craft. Um now, when you talk about the flight characteristics of the Belgium Triangle, the report indicates here that it could go from 280 kilometers per hour to 1,800 kilometers per hour in less than a second. That's equivalent to 40 Gs, right. and it made no sonic boom. So before we state that it's something alien, we got to go back to what Ben Rich said, that we have things that are 40 years beyond what you can comprehend. This is well within the technology that Ben Rich is talking about. Hmm. And when you put all the sightings together with the eyewitness reports of these pipes, these cylinders, and these pipes uh, curving around the bottom of the craft and then leading to a central donut-shaped core, what I believe we're looking at here are liquid nitrogen cooling pipes for a superconductor. Superconductors mm. only become conductive when they're super chilled, and you would need to do this to to cool the entire bottom of the craft into a superconductor. So I think that's what we're looking at here. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, uh, I've seen uh, you've uh, been talking about the Bob Lazar thing. Right. What's your take on that? <laughs> That's a good question. Very good question. Uh, I did meet Bob Lazar once, spoke to him on the phone a couple times. Certainly he has a good story, and I believe a part of his story is true. The The whole thing with Edward Ed, uh, Edward Teller uh, at Los Alamos, I think that's true. Mm. He may have he may have gone to Area 51. That may have been true. The, the S4 account is still unproven. And one thing I always question is he talks about seeing the aurora, the quote-unquote aurora. But then he also states that when he went to S4, he was on a bus that had blacked-out windows, and there's a there's a, a divider between where the people sit and where the bus driver sits. There's a divider there. Mm. So how could he get a good view of the aurora when he was on a bus with blacked out windows that never made sense to me you never asked him about that no i didn't ask him about that <laughs> but but what did check out was this uh, exotic element uh, what number was mm-hmm. it um element 115 yeah yeah that's been redeemed so here here's the thing we should we should talk about the reactor right he talks about an antimatter reactor and he talks about a small triangular shaped element 115 pie shaped segments that are machined into triangles at los almos that are loaded into the reactor there's a reaction that causes a one near 100 percent efficient uh transfer of energy now, if you think about what happens in a hydrogen bomb, that whole bikini 
island tests that were done by the U.S. government. Mm. How in the world could you put a cap on something and then have this tremendous reaction and that cap not blow off the top of this reactor? That just doesn't make any sense to me. How is that possible? How can that tuned tube be able to withstand such a reaction and not blow up? Uh, that just doesn't make sense. And if we've seen that we've already uh, covered the 1955 articles from Amarillo Daily Press that they were already working on ways to crack the gravity barrier. What uh, Bob could have seen or allegedly seen could have been a man-made craft that was passed off as something alien because we already had that technology back in 1955. Yeah. So when he was there in 88, 89, it could have been a done deal at that point. Yeah. Uh, or or it, it may be a case of both uh, back engineering and uh, a normal human. Uh, let's get your take on this. From all the data uh, and for people really to, to get to know the amazing amount of data you're spewing out to, to back your case, you should really go to your presentations online, especially the Secret mm-hmm. Space Program presentation. And and you, you'll tell us all the sources too uh, at the end here. But from all that stuff you've been researching, you know, if you were just going to make, uh, if your life depended on an expert guess, would you say this has been a natural development within the black uh, world of exotic science? Or do we have to, at some point, see an influx from another world to explain this? Honestly, I think it's good old-fashioned American ingenuity. <laughs> you know, I, I really do. <laughs> Because yeah. a lot of people say, oh, the F-117A, it's, it's back-engineered from uh, alien technology. No, that's not true. It was Dennis Overholzer, who was the gentleman who came up with the Echo 1 program that started this whole development. And mm-hmm. you can trace that back to 1973 with the Yom Kippur War, where Allied aircraft that were flown by Israeli pilots were being shot down during that air campaign. And in 1974, when the U.S. Air Force came to DARPA and said, we want you to initiate a program to design, build, and test fly a stealth aircraft that could get in under the radar screen, bomb the target, and get back. And through that, two contractors headed up the program. One was Northrop one was Lockheed. It was Ben Rich's program under Echo One under Dennis Overholzer who won the program that started Have Blue. That was October, uh, December 1st, 1977 was the first test flight. That led to the development of the F-117A. So there was no alien involvement there. And mm. so that's what I'm going with. Right. No, I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. I, I think... To such a degree that there are aliens, however we want to define them, I, I think they are much lower under the radar than, literally, <laughs> than we yeah. tend to think. And why wouldn't they? Uh, especially at this point, um, it's quite risky to start interfering. We are such a paranoid military cultish uh, society in in the world. The military and the intel ops are running most of the world in so many aspects that it would be hazardous to get into contact with us uh, at any level. Yeah, it definitely now, is. Uh, yeah. You mentioned... Um, I have some goodies uh, saved up for the end, but let's go through more ordinary stuff first. You, you mentioned Mark McAndlish, and I, I've been thinking about interviewing him, but could you give us the brief version of his um, contribution to this field? 
Hmm. You, you've been cooperating with him, right? Yeah, his contribution is huge. Uh, I'm limited on what I can say because, the, you know, it's basically his story. But he's a conceptual aerospace artist that's worked for decades uh, within the defense industry. And he's created a tremendous amount of uh, sketches, illustrations, diagrams that have been basically used within internal company publications mm. this is during the 1980s mm. and he developed a number of contract contacts within the defense industry and started putting the pieces together and he put this motif together of what the defense contractors were doing over the last 30 to 40 years did, did you meet him when he was active in the field no i met him after he jumped ships after he was no longer within the aerospace industry. But yeah, I'm good friends with Mark. I give him a lot of credit and uh, that's his background. And you can see his presentations on YouTube. And, you know, that's in a nutshell, uh, his background with that within that research. Yeah, he's also heavily depending on visuals, obviously. Um, yeah, it was his sure. work. So he's a hard one um, to put into radio, but he deserves the attention for for the amazing oh, work. So yeah. he was officially commissioned to make drawings. Why drawings and not photographs? Because a lot of times he wasn't given the full briefing on what something should look like. He was just said that we want you to make it make it look cool and make it look fast. And so drawing upon his research within Aviation Week, Jane's Defense Weekly, trade publications. He did do a number of those illustrations, and so a lot of times he wasn't even given the full information on what something would look like. He had to mm. extrapolate it from his own skills. But this was used internally to sell stuff, to, to yeah, pitch uh, projects, yeah. to sure, hype stuff. Sure. Some of the programs didn't get funded. Some of them may have. Uh, but yeah, he, he was certainly involved. Now, I don't want to get too much off subject here, but you know, we were talking about which ones are theirs and which ones yeah. are ours. We were talking about the Belgium Triangle, the tubes, pipes, and cylinders. Now, I just want to state that I'm not the only one stating this. Uh, getting back to Hudson Valley Boomerang, Monique O'Driscoll, who had a sighting in 83, she said that when this thing passed over her uh, car and her daughter was in it as well, it formed static on the radio, and then this thing made a flat 180-degree turn, and she could see the lights on the bottom of this thing reflecting on the frozen pond below. And she said that the lights flashed up and down the wings of this craft, but it wasn't haphazard. The reds would go off, the blues would go off, the greens would go off, the whites would go off, all up and down the wing of this craft. Now, I, I just want to highlight one thing that Stanton Friedman, no less than Stanton Friedman, had stated about you know the Hudson Valley boomerang. Mm -hmm. Here's what he says. I have always been bothered by the Westchester County sightings because I never heard of actions that would clearly label the technology alien. Then he went on to say... Wings in outer space could only be decoration, but of do, of course, match an earthling approach. This is from Stanton. So wow. even Stanton is on board stating that Hudson Valley boomerang is most likely our technology. Mm. Yeah. And um, well, often the alien uh, angle doesn't hold up to scrutiny because when you go into stuff, let, let's say like uh, the example we used of Roswell, then it shows up that, oh, 
all the body stories were added decades later. Yeah. There was no mention of that in original. So I, I think it's like the same field that you see Michael Cremo in. He's in uh, archaeology. The more sure. pristine the report, you know, the mm-hmm. initial find is always the best data. Because it hasn't been spinned, it hasn't been vetted, it hasn't been... Uh, Right. You know, um, tampered with at that point. There's no um, story that uh, narration that has to go with it. And I think the same you find in the UFO field. It's always best to look at the original reports to get a, uh, as little biased as possible. Sure. And to a far degree, I'll say this: that's what you're doing. You're you're relating to facts and you're putting the dots together, and then a picture emerges. Wouldn't you say? Yep. Just listen to what the eyewitnesses are saying. Um, when they say that there's this low-frequency electrical humming noise, mm-hmm. and you can identify the same audio signature throughout four, five, up to 12 separate cases, it wow. makes a stronger case for an earthling orientation. Are, are, are these audios also followed by common uh, visual denominators? <clears throat> well, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, they, they've certainly seen these craft in flight. Uh, we've got the January 5th, 2000 case. Uh, won't go into the whole thing, but let me just read you something from the Republic Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what <clears throat> the officer stated that he saw. And basically, object in sky draws interest of UFO researchers. And then it has, officer says he is 98% sure object was experimental or military. So even he is in, in the agreement that uh, this thing was military. Then he went on to say, quote, this is from the uh, January 5th, 2000 report. The craft tried to camouflage itself against the night sky and was projecting the star field above it on its underside. This nice. is Officer Craig Stevens. So what this thing was doing is he was directly below this. It was using electrochromic panels to project or transfer an image of what was above the craft on the bottom so it could blend in with the star fields above it. This is exactly what you would expect with electrochromic panels. Well, this this could could also be a hologram then. It's it's certainly possible. It's certainly yeah. possible. But it's so weird that uh, they would put out all these holograms out there. It goes to, and we're going to speculate more about that at the end, to the T1 to T3 thing. But let me point out this aspect. Uh, Walter Bosley, you familiar with him? Walter Bosley? Yeah. He, uh, I think I've, he talks about the early sightings in 1900. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He he tries to make a case that this can even go further back than uh, the war technology. But mm-hmm. be that as it may, he points out a very interesting observation, and that is that they are they seem to be evolving in looks and yeah. possibly also technology. Now, if you're dealing with an exotic technology, a phenomenon, observations of that on Earth, and you see that mm-hmm. that develops in line with culture. That's a strong case for it being Earthling. I mean, at some point, sure. you know, every, any technology has uh, aesthetic aspects to it, even though it's just the focus is on use. At some point, you saw that on computers, right? In the beginning, they look <laughs> terribly ugly, but they were only for nerd males, so they didn't care. <laughs> right. Now, females need uh, computers too. <laughs> it's a... Uh, 
looks has actually something to do with it because it's become a household applicant and and so you know you you rather have a laptop or a stationery that blends better in with your uh, home aesthetics than something that looks like a sore in the eye and the same thing has to be here that at some point there has to be not just functions but also internal or external looks and that's so human Mm -hmm. and why would we be private to see alien the the zeitgeist of the alien technology change (laughs) develop and why is it so suspiciously similar to the world to the earth culture you know what i mean (laughs) well the the configurations have changed over the decades right now triangular craft are the rage it's in vogue right now let me give you a quick case that came from david marler that didn't make it into his book this is august 25th 1990 barnsley england when a very credible uh retired police officer who had 30 years of experience was coming back from a fleetwood mac concert Mm -hmm. he was driving back to his home it was about uh, 11 50 p.m at night looked off to the side and out from this dark misty cloud comes this 200 foot per side triangular shaped craft that had a white light at each corner one white light in the center and then this relieved section in the center of that with this cross beam and girder construction and then he said that there were two human looking figures looking back at him down on the road and Let me just read you what he said. This is directly from the police officer. Mm. And this is what he said. The side of the craft appeared to have several illuminated windows, and I saw two to three figures that appeared to be human. Certainly nothing about the figures made me think they were anything other than human, reinforcing my belief that the craft was a military project. Mm. So we've got his report on file as well. Right. And, and, And but there's innumerable reports of people looking human. Sure. In, yep. in, uh, involved in this. I mean, it's more common to just see the aerial phenomenon, but the next degree, I guess they call it the close encounters of the second degree, that would be seeing the people involved, right? And the third degree uh, is... C- yeah, CE1 is a visual, CE2 is when there's a physical effect, and CE3, according to Steven Spielberg, is when you meet them. That's when you meet them. And abduction yeah. is four? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think that's right. been elevated to four. So, mm-hmm. uh, three then. And more often than not, there's humans or humanoids, at least. Uh, I don't know how generous we should be with this definition, but if this is, is intel and military, you know, the question becomes, because the teeth tree, they can never release that in the white world without no. a revolution, no. right? So what oh, yes. would they be using it for? That's a speculation that uh, mm-hmm. I think we could afford. You know, in any scenario, especially if we're being like detectives about this, yes, we need, of course, the basic facts, but then we also need to try to find hypothesis tying this together. So what would your... Maybe that's changed through the years, but uh, today at least. What's your thinking of what they need this for? One simple answer is to control the high ground. Anytime you control the high ground in a battlefield, you control the war. So that's just one low-level uh, explanation. Yeah, but hang on. And, ha- have they been shown yep. to use anything resemblant of this exotic technology in 
earthly trivial conflicts and wars mm, there there were were strange reports during the gulf war uh during gulf war one and gulf war two there were definitely strange reports of triangular and even aurora shaped craft uh that didn't make it into the uh, media at the time, but I know of at least one pilot that absolutely did see these craft during that time. Mm-hmm. We, we have his report. I'll give you another quick example. November 22nd, 1985, 15 miles northwest of Madison, there was a hmm, sighting of a very large black triangle that had these condensation pipes that were running back and forth along the bottom of the craft. We've got his actual testimony here. This is what uh, this gentleman said. Kraft was seen by a Wisconsin state employee hovering silently over Highway CV 15 miles northwest of Madison, Wisconsin. The object was approximately 40 feet across and 90 feet in length. According to the eyewitness, the underside of the craft resembled, quote, the back of a refrigerator like a collection of condensation pipes that ran back and forth. After gliding over the witness's vehicle, the, the craft departed at a tremendous speed and left no sonic boom. So this is like the fourth case now that we've talked about with these tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of the craft and then departing at a rapid speed, leaving no sonic boom, but then having this electrical humming noise as it flies over and knocks out the TVs and car radios in the local area. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm driving yep. an L car, Michael. <laughs> I'm going to be toast if I ever. Encounter. Uh, yeah, I should I should really drive a '70s tractor or something if I want to <laughs> not be, you know, because this short circuit of energy is a hallmark for these kind of encounters. It's a yeah. hallmark. Yes, it is. Yep. So, okay, so co- controlling a war zone, uh, and I know there's been many weird reports from the modern wars, uh, UFOs reports always seems to follow. I, I don't know how much of this footage is real, but there's often, uh, I keep an eye on, you know, stuff like secure, what they call themselves, secure something, who often puts out videos like that. And, and there's been, especially orbs, you know, these uh, Foo Fighter things. Mm-hmm. They seem to be uh, associated with wars too, but, th- but then again, those may not be called spacecrafts because they're just, you know, lightning bolts phenomena. Yes, right, right. But they're often associated with traditional spacecraft, are they not? The orbs? Yeah, you see a UFO, and then often there comes smaller lights out of this vehicle. Uh, yes, I'm I'm familiar with that as well. That you're talking about. Uh, different red orbs coming out of the bottom of these craft. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard of that as well, too. We can certainly talk about a couple of those cases as well. Okay, shoot. Sure. We have a case from the 1980s. This comes from Linda Zimmerman, where she interviewed a, a reference librarian who was waiting at a bus stop for her husband. And out of nowhere comes this gigantic isosceles triangle, 65-degree swept wing configuration, all black. It had approximately five lights at the back end. And she was awestruck at what she was seeing. Um, Generally, we hear about these craft that are the size of a football field. In this case, it was the size of a football field stadium. So we're talking about 800 feet across, not a football field, a football stadium, at least 800 feet across, massive craft. 
And then she noticed that there was an iris on the bottom of this craft, and this iris opened up, revealing the internal components of the craft. And then from the back of this craft, this red orb <coughs> comes down. And this is November 1985, Yorktown Heights, uh, New York. This is during the Hudson Valley boomerang wave. It was about 100 feet thick, 800 feet across. This red light goes up inside the craft, and then this iris closes. But before the iris closed, the primary eyewitness said that she saw the internal components of the craft and what, what it looked like. She described it as stacked terraced apartment complexes with lights at the back of these apartment complexes. And so she got a good view of this thing. This thing departed at a high rate of speed and left no sonic boom. But we, we know from reports from 1964 that Northrop had already been working on ways to soften or eliminate sonic boom signatures. <clears throat> and when you stack that up with the technology that was procured during the 1955 Bell Aircraft Corporation uh, and what Lear Siegler was working on, the Lear Corporation, we could lo be looking at a number of these craft that were designed and built perhaps during the mid-1960s that are consistent with what Ben Rich talked about. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Hey, I'm thinking I should have you back in the future yep. for a show on sure. um, anti-gravity. You know, is that feasible? How would you... Um, sure. Sure. Look at that in regards of human technology. Is that something you feel you're you're able to fill a show with? That I I would just highlight the newspaper articles. Maybe get into a little bit more what we talked about before. But when you track those newspaper articles from the mid 1950s, mm -hmm. you can see a pattern developing that they definitely made a breakthrough. Right. Even Greer talks about October 1954 when the breakthrough was made. That's consistent with what the newspaper articles are talking about. They definitely made some kind of a breakthrough so when you see these craft in the 50s 60s 70s making these 90 degree right angle turns that we hear about in the belgium triangle wave they've already done the research mm -hmm. they've already poured billions into the programs the reagan articles talk about the billions that were spent so when you tie that all together the research the money the funding the skunk works engineers we've got a whole black world a black landscape that's never been seen yeah, and and you can make a case for up to the 50s because you, you, that's a breakthrough. That means they've been doing mm -hmm. it for a long time. Right, that's you, right. Right, they don't just get a breakthrough the first time they sit down. And yep. we can make a case for mm -hmm. the mundane science from the 30s, maybe all the way back to Tesla, but at least from the 30s. And that's also when money was pumped into this due to the war. Mm -hmm. From the 30s and the 40s, there is a pristine like a virgin science that can lead to this direction because all of that science pre-war pre-second world war kind of went black it just people stopped you know before the war there was a lot of breakthroughs in in terms of vibrational science and and <laughs> uh, 
what you call a torx, you know, spinning and stuff like that. And all of this stuff. And there's still gizmos around on the private market from the 30s science. But no one is exploring it. At least not white. After the war. And that's so suspicious. Yeah. So I, I, I think they laid the groundwork for in the 20s and the 30s. The 40s, everything went black and, and, and was hijacked by the paranoia and the, and the military industrial complex. And then in the 50s, <laughs> they get their breakthrough. But then within the, uh, the, at that point, science has been completely hijacked and taken over by the power <laughs> interests. Well, there's a book called Blunder, How America Gave Away Nazi Super Secrets to Russia. So Russia plays a role in this. There's absolutely a Russian component to this. But then there's a report from Jane's Defense Weekly that discusses something called the Dawson Report. Now, this report was kind of a, a complete packaged document that highlighted all of Nazi Germany's breakthroughs in low observable stealth technology, radar cross-section reduction, all of this was handed to Washington, D.C. sometime after the Kennedy assassination, and this is by the British government. So uh, according to the article, there's been a long-standing, intimate, close relationship on stealth technology between the British government and the United States. This has been going on for decades. Yeah. So you put that together with what the Nazis were doing uh, at the close of World War II, what was procured under the British uh, intelligence agencies handed over to the American government there's absolutely no question that just tremendous technologies were built during this early reagan buildup stemming back from what it the, can't deny what the Jane's Defense Weekly articles are telling us, that a lot of the RCS reduction research was going on by Nazi Germany at the mid to close of World War II. And you say some stuff was spilled over to the Russians. A lot of material was mistakenly gave to the Russians. Uh, American Army uh, officials, there were truckloads full of patents designed blueprints that were given over to the Russians. And so they may have had a jump on some of the space activity. Yeah. That's why they may have gotten into space earlier than we did. Uh, as far as getting the satellites there, some of their early designs, you know, they do things different over yeah. in Russia because they don't have as much red tape as we do here. If they have a program, they'll just say go for it. Mm. Over here, according to Ben Rich, uh, you know, it was said that we build things like ladies' watches over here, but over in Russia, they build things for practicality. And that's yeah. why they can get something done faster over there. Over here, we got all this red tape and budgets you got to do. Over there, they just go out and do it. That's why when you see Russia, it's always larger than life over there. Yeah, Huge yeah. bombers and things. But so. you have to cater for, for the info wars that was going on mm. back then. If sure. America had all these black uh, deep state America had huge breakthroughs. Remember, first of all, Russia had their own Nazis, but mm-hmm. the Nazis in Russia would be less uh, efficient, I guess, than the one here, because the ones here were almost right. calling the shots at some point. But, but, if, uh, and this is Hoagland's point, if they have a huge breakthrough, let them win in the white world. Let, let us think they're ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, that would give an incentive to pump more billions into this, even just on the white area, which can afford a white space program. 
And second of all, it will um, uh, make the Russians off track if they think that they're ahead. Yeah, yeah, you've got you've got a good point. That's a good point. Again, it's not my point though, but yeah, it is a good point. Let's talk about one other quick uh, case here. This is March fifth, two thousand three, pointing toward a man-made explanation for a lot of these. Yep. This came from QFOS. That was twenty-four fifty-seven West Peterson Avenue, where they have the largest collection of private UFO cases that are generally available to the public, but no one bothers to review it. No. Uh, one of this case. Uh, it's just incredible. It's a large triangular-shaped craft that has this cross-beam and girder construction. The primary eyewitness said that then when this thing flew over, his direct quote, craft caused pictures to fall off living room wall and shook the entire house as it passed overhead. Jeez. And he said that this thing had uh, the structure that resembled rivets from a truss bridge, like rusty rivets from the Golden Gate Bridge. That's how this thing was held together. Now, I just question how anyone could think that this could be an a alien craft when you've got rivets r- holding this thing together. A lot of these things were rusty. It had this, Yeah, when was this sighting? Uh, this was March 5th, 2003, Missouri. Oh. And, you know, this is just another simple example of this triangular-shaped craft yeah. uh, with the cross-beam and girder construction, with the fasteners holding this together. Certainly doesn't appear to be an alien technology. No. Can McAndlish trace uh, an evolution also just by his illustrations? Yeah, I think he can. I mm. think he can. A lot of these craft are... <laughs> When you see and you hear about rivets, when you hear about panels, when you hear about cross beam and girder construction, when you hear about tubes, pipes, and cylinders, Legos on the bottom of this thing, you can put together a really good case for man-made technology. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, unless uh, the aliens are made of Lego. (laughs) uh, Right. Yeah, but it uh, it is suspicious, it is, and also... We have to understand that the black world, I mean, it went, even the white face of it disappeared after the last Apollo, mm-hmm. uh, was it 17? It would be wonderful for them. The biggest tragedy, I think, in, in their life, in the deep state life, was the fall of Soviet Union, because they could do anything back then. There wasn't an internet. Right. The scrutiny that we have today right. was lacking, and they had the best you know, you were done for if you were put up against the national security in the state. Where after the fall, it must be much harder for them to keep this under wraps and go with the, especially the excuse that we have an enemy. So, mm, well, they're always trying to figure out a, a new enemy to justify defense spending. That's always been what yeah. they've done. They have to create a new boogeyman. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's really coming to everybody knows that Israel and Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. is the cause of much more havoc than any of these so-called rogue states. Mm-hmm. And we also see how America is licking their, mm-hmm. uh, excuse my French people, but their ass hairs. Mm-hmm. And so the general public back in the day were believing, were buying into the Red Scare and the mm-hmm competition with the soviets today much less people a minority is buying into the bullshit propaganda and so mm-hmm. again this goes to what are they using it for because if they are fighting an extraterrestrial war meaning they're causing havoc with someone else not on earth 
then I could see why they would piggyback on first off have bullshit conflicts on earth that you know they could resolve and they they could put a country to smithereens if they really wanted to overnight (laughs) but let's keep this going let's keep our coffers filled our pockets full the military industrial complex keep it ahead of the pack and then and then put in the real t3 stuff off world you know, we want the mines, we want the resources of whatever's going on here, we want to take over. That could be a, a viable scenario for some of the more the off-world uh, proponents. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> they've got the technology to where it's seamless now. You can't tell whose is theirs and whose is now ours. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to simulate something, they could do it and it would look completely believable. Yeah, we all heard about the what's it called a project. Mm-hmm. This uh, where they're gonna invade Earth with fake alien spaceships or right. holograms. Blue beam, is that it? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any any views on that? Uh, I don't even think they have to use that. They could use the hardware technology, uh, things that were seen in November 1994 in Repton, England, where a gentleman was going to work in the morning and he was basically followed by an elliptical shaped craft with a notch cut out of it these two beaming spotlights ahead of it got the newspaper clipping here this is uh was actually reported in the burton daily mail february 17th 1995 he also states that he saw tubes pipes and cylinders on the bottom of this craft as well so when you put all these craft together you could definitely fake some kind of a scenario to put together a political campaign to boost defense spending. Hmm. Maybe that's the last card when, when all this Maybe stuff, that's the last card, right? yeah. Yep. And that goes to what Werner von Braun allegedly yes. said. But uh, I have more questions before we're done. Well, before I go there, I want to ask you to elaborate a little on, you mentioned Bill Scott and the Black Star. Yeah. Could uh-huh. you fill us in on that? Yeah. So as the story goes, uh, again, Bill Scott was the Rocky Mountain editor of Aviation Week for 25 years. He's retired now, but have to give credit to him for basically tracking this program Uh The story allegedly goes as follows. Um, After the Challenger explosion of January 28th, 1986, Hmm. there was something called an assured access to space. This is actually a military term. It's called assured access to space. And it's been stated that at least 70 to 75 percent of all payloads within the shuttle program were classified DOD satellites, different military hardware. So... In point of fact, NASA is not a civilian organization. It's in point of fact a military organization. Yep. We don't even know what was in that shuttle cargo bay all those years. There's no doubt about it. There were there uh, NSA satellites. Who knows what else they were launching? So that's the first thing. So after the Challenger explosion, what the Air Force did is they decided to start putting the payloads on the Titan II boosters. And coincidentally, with the Challenger explosion, they had multiple Titan II booster failures at the same time as Challenger went down. So at this time, we're talking about 87 time frame, Mm. they had completely lost their assured access to space. And so a desperate call went out to the contractors, Boeing, General Dynamics, McDonnell Douglas, Lockheed, 
to design, build, and test fly a two-stage-to-orbit space plane, which could be anywhere in the world in two hours, and that could launch rods from God, payload, and different uh, reconnaissance satellites, different packages. So I'll give you a quick rundown on the flight path of, of one of these programs. Uh, typically, you would have a very experienced test pilot that would be in the parasitic aircraft that would be loaded into the underbelly of a mothership. That's called the SR-3. That's approximately 200 feet in length, 120-foot wingspan, all white in color. Hmm. Looks like the vintage 1960s XB-70. You would take off from Area 51. You'd head a, a basically a magnetic 349-degree heading over Alaska. Once you're over Alaska, you'd continue on. And then <clears throat> about an hour or so after takeoff, you would airdrop from the belly of the mothership. And then you would essentially ignite your linear aerospike engines. And now you're over northern Russia. And you're traveling at about Mach 12. And you're continuing over northern Russia. You're making a left-hand turn. Now you're heading southbound. Now keep in mind it takes three states to turn at that speed. Mm. And you'd slow down. You make a left-hand turn. Now you're, you're over the Middle East. And you're doing a nuclear proliferation monitoring platform. Now you're over Africa, you make a left-hand turn, you're over southern India, you pour the coals to it here, you might be going Mach 20 at this point, and you have the capability of bouncing off, or the, off the upper atmosphere to extend your range. At mm. this point, you're at Hawaii, you make a left-hand turn at Hawaii, and you're back at Area 51 all in under two hours. Jeez. So this was a program. And, and you, can, you can really monitor yes. anything going on on Earth. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. There's no secrets yeah, when the no state on Earth can have a secret no, from these people. Not not from this program. Now this is this is the Aviation Week Space Technology March 6, 2006 issue, and it was written by Bill Scott. So he has to get credit for that. Mm. The patent for this is four million eight zero two six three nine. This is from the Boeing Corporation, a horizontal takeoff trans-atmospheric launch system. So we've got the we've got the patents for this. I've got a document from John Andrews, who's Senior Project Design Engineer, Testers Model Corporation. Uh, this is what the document says. The place, Kadena Air Force Base, the weekend of 12-13 February 1994. Initiating action, emergency call from manned aircraft to expedite recovery at Kadena Air Force Base coming from north, tracked at speed Mach 4.2, diversions for other aircraft in area. Aircraft recovered and quickly placed in secure lockdown. Uh, red lockdown declared at base. Other pilots landing kept and slept in ready quarters. So here we have a report in 1994 of a classified aircraft entering Kadena Air Force Base airspace. Other F-15 pilots had to circle around and were told to stay away. It was coming in at Mach 4.2. So right there, right there you can eliminate the SR-71 because the SR-71 doesn't go Mach 4.2. Hmm. So this is some other aircraft that landed there. Um, it was picked up by a C-5, flown back to Holloman Air Force Base 1994, and was seen by an F-15 pilot who was a transient pilot at the time. He saw the unloading of this at the far end of the field. This is back in 1994. So we've got his uh, testimony on file as well. Hmm. Do you think, uh, given all the time that has gone, I mean, it's uh, 
if they began in the 50s with a breakthrough, those people right. who's born and grown and dead, and this is like third generation by now. Uh, do you think they really can reach outside of our solar system with this technology? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, three times during his 1993 lecture at Alumni Club, UCLA, Ben Rich said that anything you can imagine the Skunk Works can do. So anything you can imagine the Skunk Works is do. They've got the technology. They've made the breakthrough. Yeah, I believe we do have the technology to go exo-atmospheric, extraplanetary, outside the solar system. Yeah, I do. It's so criminal that this information is kept away from us. We 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 really kept in a medieval stage here. Mm-hmm. If you compare, there's less difference between our official public paradigm today and the paradigm they had in the medieval ages. There's less difference development yeah. from that to this than there is from I know. where I know. we are now mm-hmm. and what the, these guys are private to. Yeah. We are the ones living in the dream world. Yeah. We're living in the matrix. Yeah. Uh, what they have is beyond belief. What they have would would shock the world if they could see the technology they, that, that we're, we're 40, we're 50, we're 60 years beyond you know what we can see, what we can ha- comprehend. It's just a dream world. Might as well be 6,000 years. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. might as well. Might as well. And uh, imagine if you're just a low-level human being and you get your chance to get in on this. I mean, who wouldn't sell all the principle right. of disclosure and right. everything just to, to travel to the stars? Sure. Jeez. Yep. Uh, can you make a case for this being that there may be a parallel because there's so many players involved you have the deep state and you have the aspects of the deep state who has to be hands on with this right not just what you call it compartmentalization you know when they right. what's it called when you fragment information yeah the com- the compartmentalization of information yeah, yeah yeah disregarding that even there has to be people in the state who is hands on informed enough yeah. To, to realize the ramifications. And then you have, especially in, in modern times, the last 20 years, you have the private contractors taking over more and more, right? It's like they're now even running the strategy. It used to be Pentagon. It used to be NASA. Right. God knows who's really calling the shots. But then you have, at least among all these companies, war companies, aviation companies, you have people who are directly in the know. And there has to be some kind of overlap in both yeah. in the private and the public where there's someone laying down strategies. There has to be. There has to be a central command for how this is used. <clears throat> it can't just be hijacked by some right. random workers. So there has to be like a, a smoke-filled room, you know, the classic Majestic 12 scenario. There <clears throat> has to be that too. What do you think? Yeah, there has to been someone calling the shots, uh, you know, in conjunction with the defense contractors and some kind of a deep state organization. Uh, what I like to track is where this is taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, you can basically kind of get a visual aid on all this. There's something called Aviation Alley or Aerospace Alley, where a lot of these craft are being built. This stems from San Diego all the way up Pacific Coast Highway uh, to the Hawthorne Northrop facility, Burbank Skunk Works, which is now Palmdale, heading up the 14 to Palmdale, Lancaster. You've got Edwards Air Force Base, the North Base Complex, all the way up to Mojave, California. So that's where a lot of these 
aircraft are being built. Lots of it is going on on the West Coast. On the West Coast, specifically in Palmdale at Air Force Plant 42, where final assembly of a lot of these craft take place. So if you want to know where all this is going on, Air Force Plant 42 is the central hub of the California military aerospace. What states are pointed out as hot zones for this technology? Uh, California, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. What other states? Yeah, Texas. Texas as well. Texas, right. Yeah, Dallas, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, General Dynamics certainly had a big hand in in building a lot of this as well. The A-12 Avenger 2 was involved. That's another thing we should point out too is when you were talking about compartmentalization, Bill Scott that stated that to fund the Black Star program, engineers charged time to the NASP, National Aerospace Plane, and the A-12 Avenger 2 program that was canceled by Dick Cheney January 7th, 1991. So that's how they were able to hide it, by charging it to other programs. Right. Yeah, because that's a common common strategy, piggybacking. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So Texas and California, any other states that's uh, pointing themselves out? Um, a little bit in Illinois, and certainly Nevada is responsible as well. But by and far, uh, of course, New York. Oh, New York. And then, uh, but by and far, California as well. Sure, out of. Okay, because I'm thinking now. I'm thinking like conventional analysis, because if these things are taking place in these states, you'd expect that those who represent those states, right, on a federal level, but also on a state level. Uh, they have to take care of the democratic process there because mm-hmm. it's too dangerous to have real people ascend to the top who may stumble right. into some of this information. So you have to control the politicians there. And when you look at Texas and California, at least those two, it's easy to see whether it's the Democratic or the Republican Party. It's very easy to see that they're corporate tools mm-hmm. in charge, like this disgusting creature, Diane Feinstein, <laughs> multimillionaire. Uh, if ever there was someone was in cahoots with the oligarchs, that's right. her. And so California, oh, it's supposed to be such a liberal hub and freedom and everything, but they they have no clue that they are. You know, the progressives, you know, the Bernie faction almost took over the Democratic Party. You know what the Democrats did? No. It's hilarious. Well, they found out, oh, okay, we're losing. So let's just impose a new rule. We're going to have super Democrats, uh, Mm -hmm. super uh, delegates on a state level, (laughs) which means all the players, right? All the old establishment. And so they just hijacked the entire win. The California Democratic Party were almost taken over by by uh, populists, and then mm-hmm. bam, now power is back. And that's the corporate Democrats. That's the corporate politicians who are paid by the same war industry, who's you know Lockheed Martin, Boeing, all these people. Yep. So the, you have to have that going in these states if these states have is such huge facilities. And Texas can be argued, too, has had corrupt politicians ever since JFK, at least. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. So that makes sense on a, on a parapolitical level, too. New York, uh, I was more surprised to hear New York uh, being, did they have bases there, too? Uh, well, Stewart Air Force Base right. was allegedly involved in the Hudson Valley boomerang. Wait, now it's been hard to tie that down, but uh, so much was going on within that tri-state region, Danbury, Connecticut, uh, Yorktown Heights, 
uh, Pennsylvania was involved, uh, but basically the, the area 40 miles north of downtown New York City uh, definitely was the heart of the Hudson Valley wave. Now, interesting to point out that this thing never appeared over downtown New York City, and there were not any jets scrambled after these craft when they appeared, mm. like hovering over the freeway. They mm. never had any jets scrambled. So even that tells you that there was yep. a man-made component to it. They never scrambled anything. No, and they always would because we have reports when they start chasing stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. Like the one that Luis Alessandro were leaking. I mean, it could be a case of one hand doesn't know that this belongs to the other hand. Uh, and that's why they were chasing it, or, or it may be more likely actual exotic because they're hard pressed to release something that they themselves are behind. Right. You know. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. You got it. Yeah. So um, moving on then. Oh, I want to take us a little detour into space. I haven't heard you address this, but I'd like you to. Back in the day, we have NASA TV. And naively, they were releasing uh, footage directly as it came in. Then you had some famous scandals like the tether incident. Yeah. And from that footage, uh, and then they um, imposed a new rule that there had to be, I think it's 15 minutes delay or something, uh, at least a delay in, in, in stuff being released. But... We have a lot of footage like the Tether incident, and according to that footage, Michael, Jesus, uh, was I mind blown the first time I was confronted with it. We have here phenomenons who make, obviously they make a 90 degree angle turn in an instant, which violates all G-forces. Then they have intelligent patterns that they're taking. (laughs) Then they have difference in speed. Then they have popping in and disappearing as soon as that happens. I mean, we have all these traits. I could go down the list of analysis of this, but they're making patterns. uh, I don't think that's just behaving like dust or whatever else they go to excuse in these cases. Where They even try to reproduce it to prove that it wasn't real. But hey... A magician can reproduce any paranormal phenomenon. It doesn't mean that that phenomenon was produced like that originally. And when we have all these things they haven't debunked, they haven't imitated all the stuff I mentioned and more, then you know you're dealing. And, and you, of course, the big thing, analysis has shown that they went behind the tether, not in front, but behind. Yeah. So it is real the footage is real in that there are something out there that we don't know what is. I mean, it could be energy yeah. phenomenon. It could be entities that are alive. But if we are regarding this as spacecraft, remember, some of them are so huge, several football fields. Forget about one football stadium. Uh-huh. Several football stadiums. Right. So, any take on this footage? So, you're talking about the tethered satellite uh, programs that were done during the space shuttle 1980s time frame where these large orbs were seen around yeah. the tether? Is that what you're talking Pac-Mans. about? Pac-Mans, basically. Yeah. I just don't know what that is. I don't know. I've seen some of those clips. I'm just not familiar with that. what that could be. It's very strange footage. I mean, it couldn't all be ours. There's so many of them. So yeah, many. I know. I know. But yeah. uh, there is one interesting thing, and that is that it isn't just filmed with ordinary cameras. So I guess <laughs> the vibration frequency matters, because if you can pick up stuff in 
uh, ultraviolet or infrared it's beyond the natural limit of human vision range yeah so and we know these um, third generation um, binoculars what's it called uh, night vision binoculars sure they have picked up stuff too that you can't always see with your naked eye you can sometimes see it if they tune into that range of frequency they just seem to be emerging from nowhere and then they become invisible again because they're changing frequency. So we know that phenomenon is going on. And wouldn't that phenomenon be going on if they are tampering with this technology? Because obviously, Michael, in order to break the limits of the light yeah. uh, rule, the light uh, wave, you have to be able to raise the frequency so much so that it comes up to photon level. And as we know, uh, photons are the only particles that are not dual. They don't have a plus and a minus charge. And so if you, if that happens, if you first have to raise your vibrations up to that level, then if you're just an eyewitness, it would go invisible rather than, you know, fly away from you. If you first go invisible. So any thoughts about uh, this aspect of the technology? Mm, sounds like you're getting into accessing and tapping the ambient zero-point energy field. Right. That's what it sounds like you're talking about. And it could be a calling card when you access that. It's a calling card. What do you mean, calling card? Uh, it, it's something that the defense industry can monitor. If someone has a device like that, they can pick up on it immediately and right. they will track that person. So it, it, it leaves a telltale sign when you start doing that. This is what I think Ben Rich was alluding to. They've already had that technology because they were hiring legions of theoretical physicists at the Skunk Works breaking these barriers and tracking this technology. And so this is exactly the heart of the issue right here. And then they don't have to monitor the people doing it. They can just see when it pops up and then send sure. a team to smack yes. it down. That's right. That's right. I hope uh, the people in the, in the free energy world are aware of these things because they're so <laughs> vulnerable, you know. Yeah, they these guys play for keeps. You know, they're professionals. They they know what to do. And uh, when you have NSA, CIA people funding these programs, no telling what they could do. Okay, let's let's enter that area. Yeah. We have this phenomenon that went big uh, last year about a year ago it started with tom delong doing the rounds and right. poor tom he probably thought he would have a better time faring at joe rogan but at that point tom couldn't show for anything so he was completely ridiculed by rogan who didn't believe in anything he thought actually he had gone bonkers then, yeah. and, and that's when all the hate started. And I, I'm neutral on this scenario, just so I'm, I'm flagging my position. And then what happens next is that people are actually backing up Tom DeLong. You have, uh, obviously, Luis Alessandro. Uh, he's very famous. Hal Putov uh, came into this and many others. And then even politicians like Harry Reid. Now, it's pretty suspicious to me that if there was a secret space program an official classified one that they would allow it out so i can see why people are are being critical to this but my point is at least they are bridging the gap between the public because they are not airing their approach to the professional ufologists or people 
paying attention. They are trying to reach the public. And the general public was swayed a little bit, despite all the hate and, and the negativity on this project. But then you have the real secret space program research. And if you compare stuff like Catherine Fitz are doing, you are doing, <coughs> Dolan, Farrell, all these people are doing. And if you compare it with the to the stars scenario, and the Harry Reid project. It's just, it's just peen. It's like, okay, let's throw them a candy to hide for the three dish dinner we're serving ourselves here. It's just like crumbles from the table of the rich. It doesn't account for anything uh, almost. So what do you think about this? Well, it's been a year now since two of the stars Academy broke their story and, all these promises that were made, nothing's come to fruition. We haven't seen anything. We've seen like two videos. That's it. There's been no further release. There's been no hardware. There's been no documentation. There's been nothing. So uh, to me, I think it's a failure. It, it just never went anywhere. Before we can even have the UFO discussion, we've got to get the aircraft declassified first. I mean, yeah. let's let's start with let's start with the man-made known technology mm -hmm. that was procured under reagan let's get that stuff pinned down and released then we can move on to something yeah. more exotic like a, a possible ufo type situation we haven't even gotten the reagan stuff declassified yet there, we're, we're light years from getting this other stuff done let alone the 50s stuff yeah yeah i mean we need to be focusing on what our taxpayer dollars have paid for over the last 40 years, get that technology declassified, the technology that can be released. Right. A lot of that will never be released, cannot be released, because it has a direct bearing on national security. Yeah. But the ones that Ben had talked about that are 40 or 30 to 40 years old, some of those programs can come out. Let's get those released first. Then we can have a discussion on programs that go beyond those and possible something that might be ET or extraterrestrial, then we can have those discussions. But we're not even at this level one discussion yet. No. That's the problem. And, and no wonder it failed yep. because uh, it got so much heat and criticism. And I think if they want to point to, oh, there's someone out there, and if they think we're ready to... I, I think it failed because people didn't follow it up. Uh, it had a potential not to fail. And, and they're not done yet, so I, I'm giving them more time. But let's say, let, let's buy into their scenario. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's a disclosure of one fact, and that is that the military and the intel are actually watching this guys they're admitting it and they're trying to pretend that they don't know what's going on and they're also uh, it seems leaning to the demonization of these uh, pretty much the opposite of Stephen Greer's scenario he, he's portraying them as the saviors and the good guys and us as the bad guy here is turn around it's straight out from the Pentagon dream scenario these are bad guys we are the heroes we are trying to deal with them we don't know what's going on. And now let's... Uh, and what 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 was the budget? A few million? It was pathetic. Because as soon as they admit <laughs> that they're taking it seriously, they pretty much admit that billions is pumped into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, why wouldn't it? A billions were pumped into the Soviet thing. <laughs> and that was mundane compared to this, right? Certainly. So they really, I don't know how well they thought this through because any thinking person realizes, okay, now you're admitted that you think there's something up there that's not ours. 
You've admitted it. And just from that, we understand that you're pumping billions into trying to understand it and monitoring it. But then you can turn it on to the dark side that you touched upon. And that is that if nothing of this actually comes from out there, then it would be in their interest to help facilitate our focus even more mm-hmm. to the extraterrestrial. I just go back, just go back to what uh, Gordon Cooper was involved in when the film was confiscated in 1957 and went to some warehouse. They could have multiple warehouses full yeah. of these films, photos, documents, drawings. There could be like 12 different warehouses around the country yeah. where we could have a very good discussion by getting that material released or some of it that would be the, the way to start this discussion not more congressional hearings and not more separate groups coming forward we've got to get that material out into the public first then we can have a discussion is there any way such releases can happen well according to gordon cooper he felt that the only way that this could happen is if a united coalition of scientists came together as one unified group and release it that way. That's the only way it would have credibility. That was the way. You mean scientists who were uh, in the system, like Hal Putoff and mm, maybe that, maybe Hal Putoff types, yeah. But this is the way that Gordon Cooper felt that this could could come places if a united coalition of scientists, perhaps engineers who worked on these programs uh and some that may have haven't worked on them but if they came together within the scientific community released that way would be the only way it would work yeah that's that's pretty old school he he's it's old yeah he's grown up with the notion that scientists are searching for truth and he doesn't account for how academia is completely controlled right and dumbed down. That's right. So I don't see that as the potential way this will blow up. Yep. Um, no. Despite how advanced they are, they're just human at the end of the day. So there's probably mm-hmm. going to be some mistake that will... Uh, I'm referring you also to mm-hmm. Dolan's uh, AD book. Did you ever read that one? Yeah, uh, I'm familiar with that book. Yeah. And one reason that we haven't seen Disclosure 2 is that doesn't even address all the programs that failed yeah. all the billions that were pumped into a lot of these programs that were failed and swept under the carpet that we've never even heard about. And if they released this information, they'd have to get into those failures as well. And they don't want to take accountability for that. Cause when you have a unacknowledged special access program, there's no congressional oversight, there's no public scrutiny and even the failures get covered as well. So for, for the, for the deep state to release this information means they have to delve into these other things too and the missing trillions involved in those. Yeah. And we've been talking about lawsuits for hundreds of years. And so that's yeah. one reason why we haven't seen disclosures. But but no, hang on. I think they could release some of the failures because if it's far away back yeah. in time, uh, sure. the people involved will be dead. Uh, and the failure would be a good policy op- because – then they could say, look, look, we have tried this, but we failed, right? Right. So they could actually cover for some of it, some of the expenses. It could be a believable follow-up to the Harry Reid uh, symbolic disclosure, I, I'll call it, more than anything. And it could be like a, a, a diffuse, a, a derail of attention to the real stuff that di- didn't fail. Mm-hmm. So I- I'd expect them to start there, actually. 
I agree with you. However, there's been a number of, uh, I guess you could say, fatalities and murders associated with with this as well, like the December 29th, 1980 Huffman, Texas Cash Landrum incident, where two of the three primary eyewitnesses died of cancer, and that was a direct result of the right. craft being within the localized area. So they'd have to cover that as well. Yeah. Um, she never received an apology or an explanation for what took place, and that's basically the number three case within ufology. That case has never been fully explained. They'd have to go into that as well. Right. We know there was a military involvement because there were 23 double rotor CH-47 helicopters going after this craft with a helicopter gunship and one Sikorsky sky crane as well. So there, that case has never been fully explained. They'd have to talk about that as well. and They're just not going to do it. Hmm. No, they're afraid of the juridical repercussions. Mm. That's why it's so important that in America, you have to get corporate politicians out of office. You have to, first off, you have to get rid of the money and politics thing, mm. uh, which is really corrupting everything, or never mind any party. It goes to, I would say, 98% of the federal politicians at the federal level are bought and paid for. <laughs> so Americans have to clean up the democracy. And first, after such a new spring, can we start talking about maybe getting to the bottom of some of this stuff? But of course, we also see that the more populist a politician is, the less he is clued in on this stuff. What, what, what's your view on the precedent knowledge thing? Hmm. Uh, which precedent do you think knew and yeah. which are not? Um, I don't think that presidents have a need to know because they're temporary employers. They're just in, yeah. in, in temporary employees. Um, Kennedy may have known some. Reagan may have some, known some. Hang on. Kennedy may indeed have been murdered for not just knowing yeah. but threatening to cooperate with the sure. Russians about it. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think certainly Reagan was briefed on some of the technology. But when you get to the tier three and beyond, it's debatable how much Reagan knew. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as Hudson Valley, what he knew about that, I think a lot of that was stemmed from the SDI program, but that doesn't mean that Reagan had to be briefed on it. No. He might have been green-lighted on the fund. No, it ended with Bush, don't you think? Yeah, probably, yeah. probably. And and after that, I don't know, Clinton, um, certainly the Clintons are a part of the visible elite, but... Yeah, Clinton and then Bush Jr. He he would probably. I mean, his father was still in charge, so he he would just be <laughs> the boy they used for that role. Getting getting back to Kennedy, as you as you mentioned, um, one reason why I think there might be a Kennedy connection is because we know that. Kennedy was assassinated November 22nd, 1963, yeah. and I have a report from the Stringfield Files that talks about a military marine security guard who was put on a plane with blacked out windows and flown to an undisclosed location inside a facility. He was told for a period of two weeks to guard a 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that was silver metallic in color, had black elliptical windows that were about one inch thick with a one-inch wow. ledge around the lip of the window. Right. The whole thing was propped up on these wooden structure crate 
type uh, constructions. And then there was scaffolding built around the craft so that these white coat lab technicians could walk around the scaffolding and get access to both the bottom and the top of the craft. Now they tried, they tried to uh, breach the hull of this with uh, jackhammers. They tried diamond tip drill bits and they also tried uh, on the third attempt using a laser to breach the hull of this craft and they could never do it. And one time the laser reflected off the side of the craft and bounced up and damaged the ceiling panel on the top roof of this facility. That was later uh, reproduced in the movie Hangar 18. That's where that came from. Wow. This incident was reflected in that movie. Right. On, the last, on the last day that this gentleman was there, just previous to that, he had a small Leica camera. And he took a photograph of this craft in the hangar. We were we were this close to getting this evidence, but that uh, photograph was lost in a flood. The very last day that he was there, he said that when he reported for duty, the craft was being loaded on an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer low-boy uh, truck with tarps and chains being wrapped around the top of it, being shipped to another location. Wow. So it looks like one way they keep these secrets is they keep moving these things from yeah. place to place. So is it possible that... President Kennedy was given a briefing on this or even shown this craft, and he wanted this information to come out to the public, maybe in conjunction with the Soviet Union, but the defense contractors didn't want to hear of anything to do with this because they wanted to capitalize and make the technology proprietary, which is one reason why he may have been assassinated. And that happened under Obama, didn't it? Uh, no, this happened 1963, December. 19- no, I mean, I mean the, the uh-huh. private NASA got privatized and all this stuff ended up in the contractor's hand. Wasn't that done under Obama? Mm, or was well, it under Bush? The only thing I would say about Obama is at the very beginning of the Obama administration, he he basically promised to declassify tremendous amounts of material. It never happened. It never happened. No, but he's been a CIA man <laughs> from day one, it seems. Uh, that's credible info about that, too. Um, so I guess Trump was the first one since Reagan that they didn't expect to <laughs> win and couldn't trust. But... You know, some people look at Trump as some kind of freedom fighter. No, he's, I think he's just looking out for his own ass. And by the way, uh, a close friend of uh, his uh, front general, the mad dog Mattis, uh, his closest friend in the world is Luis Alessandro. Hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then there's another thing I want you to take on. Which is even more interesting. After the Harry Reid, Alessandro, Tom DeLong, uh, I don't know if I would call it disclosure, but project, something very interesting happened. Did you see that press conference where Donald Trump were suddenly, and, and he's never showed any interest in this prior, but now he's clued in somehow, maybe by... Maybe by Newt Greenrich, because I know Greenrich is deeply attached to these contractors. I mean, he even run uh, for president, recolonizing the moon. But anyway, Trump came out uh, on a press conference bragging about how far we've come and what we're going to do now. And 
you know, in a typical his Trumpian style, oh, America's going to earn all these billions and we're going to take the resources and we're going to go to Mars, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to go beyond and we're going to colonize all this stuff and we're going to do it. We have great... It, it, it's, I got the feeling that one of three scenarios is happening here. <laughs> Either he got wind of the classified space program and find, okay, great, let's use this, let's hijack this, let's make political points on this. Uh, I want to sell it as uh, the future of mankind. That's one. Another scenario is that it's a part of an official whitewash. When I say whitewash, I mean, let's say for the sake of experiment that we do have uh, chemtrails as the conspiracy theorists portray it. And that now is the time to make it known. How do we do it? Well, we start having conferences about actually doing shame trails in the classical sense of the word, not just contrails, but, you know, uh, seeding uh, atmosphere with chemicals that will affect us. And they're doing that right now, by the way. They're talking seriously about doing it. And then start launching it officially. And after a while, it will become a part of the white world. Same thing with Mars. Let's say we've been on Mars. Let's say we have the technology to do it, and let's say we want to make it white. How do we do it? Well, we start talking about having official uh, trips to Mars. We start having them, and <laughs> after a while, it will all be conflated. Uh, suddenly, the technology will take off, like data, internet did, and before you know it, it's become mainstream, trivial, and a part of the white world. And so, no question raised about what happened before. So, that could be happening here too with a, a secret space program, yeah. or it may be that it's a follow up that uh, was arranged and he just telling us what he's been told to say. So there's many potential ways to go with this. Do you have any... First off, did you know about this press conference? Did you get catch it? I don't think I knew about that oh, press conference. The damn. only thing I'd say about Trump is that I think he's he's just a team player. He's reading from the script, and I don't think he's been clued in on Black Star. No. He hasn't been clued in on these other programs, and they're going to use him like they use the other presidents because he's just a temporary employee. Yeah. But you should really check out that press conference because he went – because unlike Clinton or any other people they have there, they are professionals. They know what to say and not to say. Trump isn't that sophisticated. He'll say whatever is in his mind uh, within um, his own um, ability to so, – so he could spill beans. So if he's just reading from the talking points, then – it's very limited what talking points he's been told. Mm-hmm. But from what he said, e- even if he kept within confidentiality limits or if he went, stepped a little outside, it's mind-blowing stuff. I'll send you the link after the show and you can take a okay. look. I, sure. I'm sure you're going to have some thoughts about it because the elite is there. Everyone is there. NASA elite is there. Lockheed Martin elite is there. Uh, Boeing, everyone is there. Um and he's talking about how we're going to take over the future, how the private contractors, this is a new dawn and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, I got the airy feeling mm. that trying mm. to prepare us for something, you know? Hmm. Is that where he talked about creating a space force? Yeah. It was 45 minutes. The first 50 minutes is just bashing political opponents and hmm. just okay. bullshit, but the, like it was done. But then the last 45 minutes, he's, he's uh, even naming people in the audience there who are high representatives and he's, he's kind of pulling the legs or teasing some of them. And, 
and he's he's spinning this nationalistically like yeah yeah it's all this great but we're gonna america is gonna this is gonna be uh, untold millions can be made out of this uh, potential mm-hmm. it's almost as if he he got the wind because he's never mentioned anything like this before and he's never been proven to be interested in anything like this before and it comes out of nowhere uh, <laughs> just a month after the tom DeLong disclosure okay Okay. So I I don't think it's far-fetched to to look for a connection here. We could be looking at an implement implementation of some of this technology. Yeah, definitely. And and the same uh, kind of thing, Antarctica. You know uh, that uh, these people are down there now, right? Lockheed Martin is. Uh, go, yeah, the different different uh, congressional members have gone down to see something. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, but also that we have private contractors establishing bases there, like Lockheed, mm-hmm. and another one, I forgot what they're called. What would they be doing there? Could that be a good place to ship off all the secret technology? I suppose it's possible. Um, I, you know, What are these guys looking at? What are they seeing? I think everyone's trying to figure that out. Yeah. You know, what are they flying down there to look at? What is so important that they have to see, that they have to fly down there? Yeah. Of course, uh, there is the theory that it can be antediluvian technology mm-hmm. or even traces of an advanced antediluvian civilization. But but just at, at the logistics of it, wouldn't it be perfect? Or, or are there any scientific reasons that cannot have a basis for exotic technology in Antarctica? Is the cold a factor here or the pole? No, if, if, they can, if they can build these craft, then they can build the facilities to support it. It's not a big deal. Yeah. It's not an issue. There, there's no technical issue that they, they can't overcome at this point. And it would be away from prying ice, right? Yeah, who goes down there? Who goes down there in any capacity? Yeah, penguins. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a great place to hide something. Yeah. Because you were saying how they were shipping stuff from one base to another. In, in the long run, they need a better viable solution than that, right? Sure, sure. With this technology, you could uh, you could talk about sending something that's 10 times bigger than a 747 as a cargo transporter yeah. there's no telling how much you could transport in in a in a matter of hours that would take weeks or months to do and you just need to build your first prototype down there or, or ship it there and as soon as that's there that can transport mm-hmm. I, I mean they have to have exotic transporters too can't just rely on the planes we know if the 1955 newspaper articles are correct which it appears they are then there's no telling what these guys can do as far as breakthrough ways of transportation, civil transportation, we're not going to see it. No. You know, we're, we're still takes 11 hours to get to Heathrow airport. Uh, we're still chugging yeah. away at 500 miles an hour. I mean, we're, we're such in the dinosaur ages here. Yeah. Um, I mean, isn't it just rational that our first suspicion should always be human, black human? Yeah. Yeah. People don't want to hear that though. They don't want to hear that. No, not just because it's less um, triggering of the fantasy, but it's also so much more depressive <laughs> because of the implications, right? Right. That's right. Hmm. You know, back to the Hudson Valley, um, we definitely know that there were military planes 
that were flying in formation that were trying to mock the fit, form, and function of the actual Hudson Valley boomerang. So there was a government involvement to muddy the waters, and they do that all the time. Yeah, indeed they do. But people who saw people who saw the actual Hudson Valley boomerang and this these craft that they were flying they could immediately tell the difference. Right, right. And is that always because those people themselves have been involved in the military or isn't that a requisite to be able to tell the difference? Well, just to knock down a couple of the things here, it was stated that a lot of these from local officials and the FAA that this was a group of ultralights flying in formation, but a lot of the sightings took place after 10.30 p.m., but ultralights are only allowed to fly at half an hour after sunset, so you can roll that out. Mm-hmm. Plus, these things were silent, and they could hover and made 180-degree flat turns while they were hovering. That's something that ultralights can't do. Right. But that, that didn't stop the CIA from flying these twin-engine planes in formation at night immediately after the sighting the previous night to muddy the water. See, that's what they were doing. They were mm. trying to cover their own tracks with another aircraft. Yeah, muddying the waters. Yeah. Yes, right. That's that's the go-to strategy, and it works. Uh, they do it in so many levels, including introducing the alien component, exactly. because then we'll be fighting exactly. about Because that's such a Pandora's box, you know. Mm-hmm. It can be anything and everything. This was such a, a huge case during the 1980s, and now it's completely forgotten. Yeah. It's completely lost to history because it's been almost 40 years now that this case which is like the the largest within ufology is almost completely 100% forgotten but do you think I mean let's say then that mundane black technology is that far and can even go off the solar system then they need bases with people yeah all over the place right and and could some of the kidnappings People are lost in millions. They need, first of all, they need males to for hard labor, and they need females to keep them functioning. Or, or you, you need at some point you need a barista <laughs> if you have if you're establishing a, a whole uh, civilization, uh, interplanetary civilization. So, what's your view on this? Or could they be cooperating with people from elsewhere? I know this is completely speculative and and there's probably not documentation to say, but any thoughts? That facet of the uh, phenomenon is well beyond the boundaries of my focus of research. So, there's not much I could say about that. Okay, okay. No, you're professional. You're not going there. But we have to. Because when we take info like the stuff you're digging up seriously, we have to start philosophizing around the ramifications and implications. And you get dizzy, folks. You get dizzy. Because, like you say, they can do anything to anyone. And they're not coming clean. And that tells me because, I mean, if they have total control, they might as well come clean with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that would, in many instances, be easier than wasting all the money on, on decoys and stuff. But it means that they may not have total control. There may, means they have, there may be other players out there, you know? Right. And from all the studies you've made, I'll ask you this. Could you point to something that definitely doesn't seem terrestrial? <sighs> Good question. Um, <laughs> I did write a book. Basically, <clears throat> it's called Retrievals of the Third Kind, Cosmic Crashes, Corpses, and Cover-Ups, where I 
basically studied the Leonard Stringfield files and put that into a book form. I came up with 119 potential crash retrievals. Some of those have to be real cases. Now, I couldn't prove it. Leonard Stringfield couldn't prove it. But there was enough smoke there to really raise some questions. So I keep an open mind. I keep an open mind. At least two or three of those cases have to be real. And from what I've read within those files, all roads lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yeah, because I was going to ask you which are the bases that are really the most suspicious. And you say today that's one of them? Uh, I think in the past... In the present and in the future, all roads lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force. But they've got wow. the facility, they've got the labs, they've got the manpower. Within the Stringfield files, I kept getting reports that bodies, craft, debris were being shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base on trucks. You know, not not all that covertly back then. Mm. They were just being shipped via trucks. And, and in a lot of cases, if something crashed and it was too big, they buried it at the site. But within those files, there were at least 12 cases where debris was being shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and over and over and over again. I can't prove it. Leonard couldn't prove it. Some of his witnesses were probably hoaxers and tricksters. Some of the cases within the files were, were probably fake. But you would think that out of 100 and some odd cases that some of these had validity. Absolutely. What about Area 51? The the bigger place to look like look at is Air Force Plant 42. Plant 42. Because Area 51 is too famous, right? Well, Area 51 is where they do the test flights, but the manufacturing takes place at Air Force Plant 42. That's where I like to focus my attention. And uh-huh. and you can just drive around Plant 42 all day long. It's a lot more accessible. Where is it? And that's uh, that's in Palmdale, California. Hmm. It's a long aerospace alley, so that's the primary focus of uh, military-industrial complex. Right. And, and Patterson, where is that? Right, Patterson Air Force. Well, that's yeah. in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Dayton Ohio. Ohio. Okay, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so back to the private contractors versus the deep state. Who do you think are calling the shots today? Is it people in the state I mean the permanent representatives in the state, <laughs> right. not the temps. Or is it uh, multinational corporations, do you think? Again, it's a speculative question. but mm-hmm. uh, I still think that there's a privatized defense contractor element to this. You know, what, what has Lockheed been doing the last 40 years? What has Northrop Grumman been doing? Where... Where are their files? What is in their files? Um, a lot of that material has never been released. So it's it's a combination between the privatized defense contractors and those funding them. That would be a question for Bill Perry, I would suspect. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because we also see that uh, as soon as uh, someone are done in their official capacity job, either it's a general or an intel officer yeah. or another bureaucrat, where do they go to work? in the private industry, among the bodies in the military-industrial complex. So so it's the same people in terms of yeah. identity who's floating about in this milieu, never mind you, if it's the state or the yeah. private. 
Yeah. You brought up a very good point. That's something that I kind of bring up in my uh, lectures mm-hmm. is something called the, the revolving door phenomenon. Right. That let, let's say the Air Force wants to have a brand new bomber. So they'll they'll have the generals go to the contractors. The contractors will wine and dine the defense uh, people at the Department of Defense at the Pentagon. And, you know, this particular contract will win the bomber program. So uh, the DOD will give them billions of dollars. Now, when when the program is all done and the uh, DOD official is retired, he is retained by the same contractor that won the contract as a consultant. So these guys, it's a revolving door. They can't lose. Right. This must be the most profitable thing in modern history it must also be the biggest secrets in modern history obviously anyone who can actually crack uh, holes in this and 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 get us some peek into whatever has to be high up in the the list of you know people they are keeping an eye out eye on you would be one of those Uh, have you experienced anything to uh, because I, I couldn't get hold of you you didn't reply to your mails there was this <laughs> there was this guy who facilitated this interview what's his name let's give him some props here um, a friend of you who contacted you asking to get on mm, my show not Do familiar his name? don't don't recall shit I forgot to <laughs> but you're, you're out there and I'm going to give you kudos next time I'm Michael on, okay? So thank sure. you for that. But I have to be honest with you. I was afraid they've taken care of you, you know? <laughs> you were nowhere to be found. And you had no conferences, uh, at least back then when I was researching right. you. So right. uh, how how seriously do you take your own uh, security? No, I just provide a, a public service. That's it. No, I'm, I'm looking at uh, government-released documents that are in the public domain that you can get at the library of congress right so it couldn't couldn't be more open than that exactly so so there's basic journalistic work actually yeah it's 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 for anyone that can find it you know it's it's there in fact they'll give it to you for free all you have to do is walk in there you can literally and i've done that you literally walk in the front door of the library of congress Mm -hmm. and you go to the uh, reference area and you tell them exactly what you want and what year you want it from. You have to wait about five minutes because they have to go down in the archives. They'll copy it, bring it up to you, and hand it to you. And, you, and you're done in 15 minutes. You're out the door. You can literally do that. So it's never been easier to be a researcher, a investigative researcher, but still nobody's yeah. doing it. Well, yeah, you know, so <laughs> save you and a few others. At, yep. At that point, at that point, you can track the code names, right? And you can match up the code names with potentially the contractors that were involved, and then you start interviewing the contractors, develop a mosaic, a a rough pencil sketch of what that program looked like, and then that has to be rendered in a three, you know, 3D full color rendering, and now you've made the whole program come alive rather than sitting in a dark, dusty hangar for 40 years. Now you've just made the whole program. That's that's really the gist of what I'm involved in. Right. And it's such an excellent, I mean... It's amazing what uh, passes right under our nose tips. In fact, I've right. heard that they speculate uh, deliberately in uh, burying information within the white world. It's better mm-hmm. 
than having uh-huh. it due to many things among us um, plausible deniability and sure. afraid of being uh, the law somehow once upon a time can ke- reach them oh no look we had it here stuff so yeah it's excellent and also it can't be denied when it's it's there you you don't have to be dismissed as conspiracy or whatever because this is anyone can research it anyone can document it if they right. do the dirty work that you've done right mm-hmm. yep it's in their own documents so yep they're they're the ones saying it's a program not me yeah. right exactly hey before we leave today i have a, a couple of final questions but Anything you ought to get out there where we're at this topic that I haven't asked you about because this isn't my forte, so I may have missed many important areas. Feel free to fill us in on that now. Mm, No, I think we've covered the basics. Uh, We talked about Hudson Valley Boomerang. We talked about the Belgium Triangle. We talked about the Southern Illinois Triangle. Uh, We talked about Cash Landrum. We reviewed some of the uh, Gordon Cooper files. Mm. But I would just like to point out that Don't be fooled when you hear about a sighting and you hear eyewitnesses talk about pipes and cylinders on the bottom of it, flashing lights that aren't haphazard but go off in sequence up and down these craft like reds, blues, greens going off in sequence, not haphazardly. Uh, When you hear electrical humming noise, when you see uh, rusty rivets holding these things together, don't be fooled. We're, We're looking at them. And especially if you see people. Yeah. If you see pilots that look like they're wearing one-piece tight-fitting flight suits and they look like your typical military test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a clear. Yeah. Right there. But you have access to all these reports. And you mentioned that you actually did write the book, Retrievers of the Third Kind. I love the uh-huh. title, by the way. But when uh-huh. I researched you for basic research – I had a hard time finding a decent bio of you. There's not even a website of you. Yeah, it's true. Um, I managed to track down one book, but uh, I could only find one book. If anyone has that, they'll be rich. It goes for the price of $645. Is that you? Uh, Where is it? (laughs) It's called Project Aquarius. Uh, yeah, that's a PDF file that was available for a, a very minimal fee about almost 10 years ago now, but I can't see it costing $600. It does. It does. It's just no. because it's so rare. Wow. But why aren't you making or have you made books about this topic? Mm, the, the two books that I've written – is the president the president's secret book, which which is at the Library of Congress now, and then the other one is the crash retrieval book. Those are the only actual books that I've actually written. Okay. The PDF file on Project Aquarius was just a, a multi-page PDF. It doesn't qualify to be an actual book. Hmm. Okay. Still, it's going for for almost seven hundred dollars. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So if you reissue that book, there'll be some money in it for you. And it will be cheaper for those of us who follow you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you better reissue it. Um, it's out of my jurisdiction. I was That was created during my career at Open Mind. So it's completely out of my jurisdiction. And, and the books you have uh, made, are they, they're not available at Amazon, I think. Um, they're available on the MUFON website. If you go onto right. their store, you can purchase the uh, crash retrieval and then the President's Secret Book, which is a takeoff on National Treasure, but 
that there really is a president's secret book. It's at the Library of Congress, and it's free to anyone who wants to read it. Amazing that MUFON will publish your book. I would imagine they were ideologically opposed to your work. Um, uh, no, they greenlighted me. They greenlighted me on doing the research, and so that was kind of the agreement where I'd be given access to the material, and then it would be put together into a form where it'd be accessible to all in one complete, concise, fully illustrated manuscript. And that's what that book is. And it, it delves deep within the Leonard Stringfield cases, examines all 75 three-ring binders, and I picked out of those 75 the best 119 cases and built a case around each one and fully illustrated each one. Right. Yeah, right. Because I see you have done many magazines, uh, notwithstanding MUFO and UFO Journal. But uh, then again, I guess they figure that your research goes to the fact that even they agree upon that some of this is terrestrial. At least <laughs> if we have back engineered it uh, at a point, they need to realize that <laughs> some of it has to be us. So right. uh, it's great when the old school people are, uh, you know, opening up to that because it's been. It's been lost. That, that's why the, I think there hasn't been a serious debate in 50 years, um, except for in certain closed circles. Because when you start at the deep end, when you start with the with the monster-looking aliens, then you're really <laughs> yeah. starting at the wrong end of of. It's the same in psychiatry, right? You don't jump to demon possession. You you first try to rule out all the other reasons why you're hearing voices or whatever is going on, right? And, and, yep, and that's sure. just basic scientific approach, and that needs to be done much more in this field. And I'm so happy you joined us today and, and did contribute to do that. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. Perfect, Michael. By the way, why don't you even have a, a website? Because I post everything free of charge uh, on YouTube. Everything that I've come across, everything I've released is just free of charge. This is a crusade. It's it's not a money-making scheme. It's just a crusade. And so, right. you know, since we already paid for it once with our tax dollars, it doesn't make <laughs> sense to pay for it again. That's true. But, uh, okay, so at least you have a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, let's uh, let's give that a shout out then, because uh, I have it's, many of uh, my followers on YouTube. So what's the, yeah, what is it? Um, well, basically anything that I've done is on general platforms on YouTube, that's one thing. But then I, I have a very small, I, I could make it bigger, but yep. it's called Blue Room Media. Okay. That's my actual YouTube channel. I've got a couple of quick things on there, but primarily anything that I've ever released, you can find it on YouTube, not associated with my channel. No, but different. Uh, different. Well, uh, one thing you could do, like many of our guests who have a YouTube channel, what they do is that uh, when uh, they are interviewed somewhere or they're out, they're making a playlist to collect it in one place. You know, it doesn't have to mean that you re-upload it on your channel. It's just that it's mm-hmm. uh, collected there at least. So I encourage you to do that because even though you don't want to skim of this, uh, I mean you you do have expenses and all that. But okay, you're you're being sure. uh, generous. You're you're taking care of that yourself. You don't want to earn a dime. Still, it's still the marketing aspect. Sure. Getting the info out there should be a part of your warrior crusade. And so that's one thing I recommend. That's very easy to do. Just collect interviews or and presentations you've been given uh, <laughs> on your channel as our playlist and we'll make sure you get 
people coming over to your channel. I'm gonna, what I usually do when I have guests on, if they have a YouTube channel, is that I like it from our channel, so it's easier mm-hmm. for people to find it. And will you be putting up stuff on that little channel of yours from time to time? I I may do that, but you got to get inspired. You know, this yeah. is a, a very hard business to get inspired because it's about a, a 101 to 1 ratio. You might interview 100 people or try to contact 100 people. You only get one in return. So it's a very hard road. And the longer that goes by, the more these skunk engineers go away, and it's it's hard yeah. to track it. So it's very hard going. But your approach, it's so original and fresh. I, I think if you made it into a book, it would sell well and... Uh, uh, maybe okay so you don't want to profit on it so donate mm-hmm. whatever right or, or just make it yeah. pay expenses you're having to do even more work um you i've know. thought about yeah i've thought about it for a long time it's something i kind of want to do but in my case it would be one all-encompassing yeah. volume yeah it wouldn't be spread over seven different versions it'd be one complete volume it'd be 500 pages long it would be massive it would be fully illustrated and it'd be done right and it would take a long time to do and yeah i don't know it just i don't know it's just a major are, are you bogged down by family no. work no I'm, I'm not bogged down it's just a factor of would there be an interest in it or is it just a very small group of aviation enthusiasts that might consider it a coffee table book it, it there's there's just not an interest there's not enough interest no no i can answer that first off yes that would happen then it would have a secondary impact which would be other researchers it would be like you know richard dolan's books on um, mm-hmm. national yeah. security yeah it would be like that kind of a book only for this approach so it would be a basic reference book because nobody has done all this work and well you're left to two people now mm-hmm. so it would help tremendously for and people like if your friend uh, dr farrell yeah he, right. he relies on primary works like that because he's more like a document researcher. So when right. people have access to stuff like that, new stuff can be uncovered just by you having put out all this, these facts. <laughs> it can facilitate more discoveries and, and be a data point in, in a huge puzzle. You, you said it yourself. 50% of the puzzle is missing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So I think it would, it, it would, it would certainly sell enough to go around uh, and come back in zero. But um, <laughs> would it be big profitable? Well, today books aren't a profit-making business anyway, is it? Right. It's right. just for posterity, if anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, generally, I just want to make an impact. That's it. I just want to make an impact. And you certainly have. Thanks. You certainly have. I, I really encourage people to check your presentation with pictures. Then they can afford this machine gun, you know, illustrating <laughs> <laughs> the pictures. And, and, and it makes sense because it, you, you can, it's tangible. Uh, today we've yeah. had to, you know, go a little around and keep a very superficial level on it. But you're game to come back, right? Sure, absolutely. Cool. And I'll definitely have you back. But by then, I think I've had Mark McAndlish on in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, we want to cover all aspects of this. So for us, it was never a question you were a must-have. Wow. So I'm so glad we got to do that. So, hey, uh, how long have you been in this field, actually? Way too long. <laughs> on 
<laughs> on the aerospace end of it, way too long. Yeah? Yeah, 30 years, about 30 years. Wow, okay. You know, that should give you so many insights. Tracked, tracking the aircraft end of it, yeah. It's been a long, it's been a long crusade. Mm-hmm. And when did you first come out with this research? <clears throat> well, let's see. I've been studying it prior to going to college, but in but in '94 I started getting really involved. But it, it's been it's been 30 years since I originally started this research. Okay, but coming out with it were in the '90s already. Mm, I would say after '94. Okay. Where I started taking a proactive approach of actually producing material. Yeah. You know, what I've heard from you before is obviously everything you've done in the Secret Space Program conference. Uh, Jeroen and all those people, we're very in agreement with that take. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so traditional ufology here. So that I know, and I've heard your shows with, uh, may she rest in peace, the lady over at um, Bite Show. I've forgotten. Oh, really? Yeah, that's uh-huh. obscure. <laughs> It's yeah. Long ago. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Georgian. Georgian. I've heard the stuff you did there. Georgian. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard a couple of things here and there uh, that you've done in addition. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you, Michael. Many years ago, before I saw any video from you in relation to this, a chap was interviewed in a mainstream TV channel. It may have been CNN, one of those, and it was right. About, he was saying it was so trivial, it has nothing to do with Wu and, you know, X-Files playing and anything. It was just that he was arguing that many of these um, new advanced technology aircrafts are mistaken for UFOs. And I wonder if that could have been you. Because mm. my vague memory, it was like a clean, shaved, <laughs> handsome guy in his uh, grown-up, but youthful and uh, into this geek technology thing, you know, knowing everything about any spacecraft. And it has to be you. What, was it you? Have you ever been interviewed by mainstream TV where you've actually said this thing? Um, the only thing that I would have thought would be something on the History Channel. So if it wasn't that, I don't know. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Could have been History Channel, yeah. yeah. Back when... Could have been History Channel, yeah. Yeah, I think it was even before they started Ancient Aliens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been time frame, so... Right. Hmm. But uh, th- there you did... It wasn't like a paranormal show, right? It was just down-to-earth. Yeah, it was specifically about those particular aircraft so it, it may have been that one yeah hmm. so it may have been your face i so interviewed because i remember it still it made an impression on me because i've always had the inclination of thinking these are black yep. and nobody was talking about yeah. it there you were at the mainstream program saying i don't think the word ufo was mentioned actually uh, the focus was on advanced military spacecraft and the black world of it. Right. You know. That's right. That's right. Could have been you. you got it. Is, is is that interview you talked about with the History Channel? Is that online today? Yeah, there is. Yeah, some of that early stuff is there. That's where we interviewed Jack Pickett, where he saw four of those at MacDill Air Force Base back in 1967. Right. And so that was a black program that has not been released even to this day. This That program hasn't been released. If we can't even get that one, then you, there's no telling what they have. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And uh, again, this just goes to my point of you should collect the many of these interviews of yours, your, your work in one channel. So at least if you're not uploading everything there, at least it's going to be a hub <laughs> for your work. And that will help, I think, yeah. because people are like that today. You have to spoon feed them. <laughs> Nobody would do the dirty work of researching all this. Uh, few, yeah. maybe researchers will. But if you have a central hub where your perspective is put out, it will influence the field mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Just like this show will do. Because we have the air of many people who are less into the alien sure. scenario as the human scenario. Not just for UFOs, the same with, you know, advanced... Um, prehistoric civilization Uh we have more people uh, among our audience open for um, advanced human civilization rather than everything came from the stars and it's kind of the same phenomenon we're dealing with here actually yeah the tendency to credit you know the gods the parents the myths instead of seeing it's actually us right it's a psychological phenomenon that that's right um yeah any any last words before we call it a day I think we've covered it all. I think we got it. Excellent. First time I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming on, uh, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks Thanks a lot for your time. Hey, thank thank you. you. Thank you. Anytime. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. And that's our show for today. Let me add a few points at the end here because I suspect a lot of alien lovers are upset that we're emphasizing a human causation to this phenomenon and certainly some will complain in the comments field under this video and accuse Michael of being a disinfo agent which is the typical knee-jerk reaction from alien fundamentalists but use your thinking skills how can anyone accusing the deep state of being the perps and wanting them accountable for the crimes, be an agent of these same forces. That's like accusing a corruption hunter for being in cahoots with the white-collar criminals. Besides, Michael is not basing his research on guesswork, personal opinion, subjective hypothesis, etc. Indeed, he he's reluctant to even speculate when pressed. But relate solely factual evidence that you yourself can verify. If you can get your head out of your alien hiney instead of being lazy and clinging to your emotionally based belief system. In lieu of your own investigation, who's then the real dupe? Who's maintaining the actual disinfo? Look, what would benefit these criminals who run havoc with our money and keep us at a primitive level while we are financing their godlike ventures? Someone who tries to nail them on it? Or someone who claims they are innocent and that it's monsters from outer space who's behind this? Now, you may object with pointing out all the abduction scenarios, crash retrievals with bodies, weird encounters with exotic creatures, etc. But, again, let's just spend a minimum of critical skills here. Between their proven programs for PSYOP, mind control, hologram and anti-gravity propulsion systems, these bastards have the technology to fake anything, especially an alien abduction scenario. The military and industry does torture and war crimes for breakfast. Do you really think it would be beneath them to abduct innocent people in disguise for whatever reason? And these so-called crash retrievals of bodies, unless you personally were present, how the deuce do you know 
they are true, meaning that the craft was out of this world or that the bodies, if not entirely fabricated, actually were non-humans. There's just not sufficient evidence for stuff like this. Most of it is rumors and third-hand accounts, and, and the chain of information always have severe weaknesses where it is sensitive to manipulations at some of the steps, let alone the claims that these people even have created robots, maybe even biobots, that appear outlandish and alien to us. And of course, we have the real phenomenon of people who personally encounter the weirdest creatures, apparently in private away from influence from officials but even so how do we know this is entirely physical have you noticed that more often than not there's paranormal aspects to those experiences not too different from psychedelic shamanic or even obe and de experiences no do you have the skills and insight to distinguish a spiritual or dimensional encounter from the more mundane phenomenon dealt with today and nobody is dismissing out of hand that there may be aliens in the classical sense of the word floating about, and that just maybe some cases can be attributed to that. But by the same token, you cannot deny that at least some are precisely a result of our covert toys. Besides, your alien scenario has brought us nowhere for over 75 years, and if you're stuck in that paradigm, insisting that's the only thing going on, you're missing the point, because here we have a perfect Occam's razor. There's people with the money to do all this, with the motivation and lack of ethics and oversight. They have the technology and even the paper trail to document it. And if you're still in denial, you're part of the problem. Even more so than the skeptics, because the latter fools only deny the phenomenon itself. A much more poisonous stance to help the criminals further is acknowledging the phenomenon and simultaneously pointing away in the most remote directions, ensuring that no focus will be brought on these scoundrels. Denying the phenomenon only works with the complete ignorance who are uninformed, but anyone who learns just a little bit will soon enough realize the reality behind it, and they are today the majority, so deflecting with invoking fantasy creatures will work wonders as a cover-up for them. No, please upgrade your critical skills, and if nothing else, keep an open mind just momentarily while you do your own research. Dr. Farrell's book on Roswell is a classical example of how the military intel industry may have succeeded in polluting a perfectly human-caused scandal with wild notions that not only deflects blame and attention, but also prevents the ignorant masses from even touching the matter, since to them the greys and lizards and what not is a step too far, resulting in a complete dismissal of the entire phenomenon. Whereas if they got clued in on their own money being used for plausible technology, it wouldn't be as paradigm challenging and the number of people becoming aware and demanding accountability would explode. So if you're still a youthful cultish believer at least be pragmatic you know you can't get the majority to buy into your speculative scenario of blue avians ashtar command sita grace or whatever but we can get them on board on this factual level of classified black projects and that's a start 
even if we should go further and take on the aliens next, we have to begin somewhere and we will never get anywhere if you insist on beginning with the deep end. So it's in every truth seeker's interest to band together and start at this level that we actually can know and do something about as a first step. And if it gets revealed and established within the white world, then there's the perfect ground for going further as it will work as a bridge between the ignorant denial of the public and the awareness that the phenomenon itself is real and verifiable and just begging to be uncovered by a minimum of investigation. Folks, we may be dealing with a multiple-layered phenomenon. Not everything is one cause, not all causes are one thing. So get your act together and stop attacking other truth-seekers with your pet notions, as it is contraproductive and will only maintain the status quo, divide and rule, the laughing all the way to the stars, while we're ants stuck to the globe in fighting about stuff we don't really, really know for sure, save some expert guess and preferred speculation. It's time for you to choose. Either you want this phenomenon exposed and integrated into the main paradigm, in which case you need to curb your own holy cows and be tolerant of other investigative tracks. Or continue being a useful idiot for the powers that be and give them cover while attacking fellow truth seekers who devote energy into uncovering their own approaches. We can afford simultaneous research into different leads as it will add to the pressure of disclosure, but we cannot live with the simplistic ignoramus attitude that anyone who doesn't agree with your own personal emotional bias is automatically spewing misinfo or disinfo. Get it? Okay, let me end my rant here. Just had to get that out of my chest because I've seen how the alien fanatics have attacked sound researchers like Shrat before. And enough already. Anyway, I promise we will take this further in the future and maybe we eventually will also cover your pet perspective. Even if you disagree with the approach of our show today, I thank you for listening and bearing with us. In closing, I'm reminded of what Charles Fort said. Almost all people are hypnotics. The proper authorities saw to it that the proper belief should be induced and the people believed properly. That's it. Your host has been Al. Due to your support and my team, sincerely signing off. Be seeing you. Who is number one?